Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. BFG, Mr. Bowman, how fair? How fair are you? I fare well, buddy. It is uh, the fourteenth of July in the year two thousand and seventeen, and it is a beautiful Oof. day here in Southwest Scotland. I'm claiming, exclaiming that point because normally this time of the year I'm under feet and meters and kilometers of cloud and rain, and and here we are with uh, sunshine. I've had a about 12, 10 days off now of my, of my school holiday. No, I'm two full weeks into my school holiday. And uh, I've had nice weather about 60% of that time. So, so far, Scotland summer holiday onto a winter. Seems like we traded up our weather patterns. Because um, it's a monsoon season here in Ottawa. Not a real monsoon, mind you, but uh, it's enough for people to comment. Yeah, I, I was wondering actually, you know, what the weather was like. Because it's been two, it's been more than two years now since I've been home. Uh, and in, well, in your neck of the woods anyway. And I, um, I kind of, I don't know. Usually it's like, usually it's like sticky humid, isn't it? In July. Yeah. Well, it is. Yeah. The thing is, is that after with the, before the rain falls, it's incredibly humid, but that was usually the pattern for the past couple of summers in July. Mm -hmm. But now it's, it's just like almost like cool Atlantic weather and then just rain. And then every once in a while, some big doses of humidity going up to 34 or something like that, and then dropping dramatically in the middle of the day. Very yeah. strange. I remember us talking on the uh, last episode, you've got a nice, uh, cool bedroom though, don't you? Yeah, well, my, my, my bedroom is below, it's somewhat subterranean in the sense that it's, it's, it's almost like actually, if you've seen my bedroom, as you know, it's half under, it's like half above ground and half underground. Because when I stand and look out the window, I'm above the ground, but below the window is underground. That sounded really stupid, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I've been in your bedroom and I don't understand that. Yeah. But hey, uh, if the I... floor is uh, if the floor is below the ground level, then it's then it's then it's underground. I guess you could say that. Yeah, I still don't know what you're on about. But you know what? That's okay because we're not here to talk about weather, pleasantries, or the foundations of our bedrooms. We're here to talk about the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. This is our eighth episode in our Light in the Pipe series. And today we're going to talk about three more short stories from the second short story collection as published in the Strand Magazine. Um, three, yeah. We got the stockbroker's clerk. We've got... Which I have a bit of a head start on. You did, yes. Yeah, because you read that thinking you needed to for uh, for last episode. Although it was an easy mistake to make following the publication information in the American editions. Uh, and then we're going on to the Glorious Scott and we're going to finish off today by talking about the Musgrave ritual. So I'm looking forward to this chat, man. Like, um, not just because it's summer holidays, but I feel like there's 
I, there's always always stuff we can dig out of these stories, but I feel like today particularly we're going to have some really good conversation, uh, some good laughs along the way. Uh, we're going to learn a few things. It's going to be awesome. So any starting points All for right. you? No, I think uh, these three tales, uh, there's, there's, they have a bit of a similarity to them. And I and uh, I'm, I'm curious of you know on how we're going to dis out the uh, not dis out because this is a negative term but uh, how we're going to call it all the different themes and whatnot and see if we can see the same uh, ideas and concepts you know that 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 are trying to be put forward in this story mm-hmm. in these stories. Yeah, there are some similarities. Yes. So I hate when you ask me to make some few opening points because I like jumping into media res and great. I. I I feel a summary should be done after everything is done. Not like I don't like prefaces, so that's my uh, rant right there. I don't like prefaces, so let's just jump into the stockbroker's clerk. Let's do it. Uh, I'm I'm quite happy with that, buddy, because this will be one of those rare occasions when we'll have time to do a bit of a plenary at the end. Because normally, you know, we're running over a problem with technology. You know, my wife and my daughter are coming home from their little sojourn, and you know back to domestic bliss, as it were. So we're always wrapping up quick. But today we've got some extra time because my good lady has taken uh, herself and Rosanna, my daughter, away to uh, Granny and Papa's for the night. And I've got an afternoon lighting into an evening of podcasting, talking Sherlock Holmes, and then having some uh, drinks, playing poker with the pals of mine over here. So it's going to be awesome. Yeah, it's going to be a good night for me. And this is the perfect way to start it. Poker, awesome! It's like you're in your, uh, it's like you, it's like we're back on the Fleming podcast now. Uh, well, yeah. Although, well, no, not poker. It would be like bridge or yeah, baccarat. Or... That's right. I, I don't know. I, I reckon he must have known poker, but Fleming probably viewed it as like a kind of downscale, a little bit, uh, you know, below him. Okay. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Do you think he played poker? I'm sure he. I'm sure he must have played poker. You know, when it, he, he always talks about drinking American beers when he's in the States and liking certain brands and whatnot. So I have a feeling that he must have played poker at least once or twice. Oh, by the way, speaking of Fleming, um, I was listening to a, a, a podcast about Camp X. And the, oh, lovely, yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting was, stuff and the training that went on in, in, uh, in Oshawa and around that area. Yeah, like, uh, what's his name? Uh, who is that master Canadian spy? I forget his name now. Um, was it... Uh, Davidson, shh, or? Shh, shh, don't reveal my identity. Oh, yes, of course. Although you would have to be very, very old by this point. That's true. Right, okay, go ahead. I honestly forget his name now, though, but there's like a master Canadian spy. That's just how good he was. I, he was called, he was called, his codename was Intrepid. Okay. And he, tra- he trained at Camp X, or even trained officers there as well, so. Mm-hmm. Cool. Pretty cool stuff. And um, Camp X was... F- Fleming had a big hand in that, for sure. He did, yeah. And that was interesting to get those connections, given the fact that we had done our Bond podcast on him and his books, and of course the films a little bit earlier, or the film music. We're going to do the films once we're finished Sherlock Holmes, though. We're going to do a full James Bond film retrospective, I think. Oh, that would be good. That, that sounds like a good idea. I think it'll be fun. But we'll talk about that later. We're not here to talk about Fleming, uh, and I'm, I apologize for taking us down that route with Camp X, because you don't like prefaces, and I know, I know you don't like divergence. <laughs> Well, sometimes you don't like your addictions, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you gotta you gotta own up to that, right? You you know you gotta admit you have addictions and whatnot. So you it's do. always good to uh, own up to them. It is. But um, speaking of domestic bliss, you were speaking of uh, we got we, we got a little bit of domestic bliss happening with uh, Watson at the beginning of this story because this one takes place 
just after he's married. It does. And apparently, yeah. he's already grossing himself into the uh, medical work. Yeah, already he's um, leaving his wife behind for something a little less annoying. <laughs> that's um, that's like me reading between the, I, that's I, me reading I, between I, the I, lines. I don't know what he's running away from. I guess it's just 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 the typical masculine behavior of the Victorian age, I suppose. Yeah, I think responsibility and and feeling the need to do anything around home, you know. Although, and now that I recall, they were in this they, where he practices is also the play the house where they where they live because he mentions he has to go upstairs and tell tell his wife that uh, I'm off on a big adventure to to uh, Birmingham or something like that, right? So I didn't know that he told his wife. I thought he had to tell the other guy so that he would cover his patients. He did, but then afterwards he met, he spoke he spoke to his wife. Oh, how thoughtful! Uh, of him. Yeah, very very good, very, very good good of him. He's a sweet guy, that Watson. <laughs> Okay, so should we just uh, launch into it then? You who doesn't like prefaces. Yes. All right. With well, already so many prefaces behind us, we might as well mm-hmm. continue. Stockbroker's Clerk is the fourth story written in the chronology, at least, published in the Strand magazine of these, the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. This was published in the Strand in March of 1893, so that would have been on the shelves February, and was in Harper's Weekly in America on the 11th of March, 1893. Um I've got a couple of reviews from our friends at Goodreads. The only reviews you can get on these well, books, but uh, they'll kind, do. Kind well, of, Well, some yeah. of them will do. <laughs> some of them will do. Look, uh, let's just go through it. Um, <clears throat> Cora, the Tea Party Princess, uh, in all of her infinite wisdom said, quote, this was very predictable, end quote. Good for, well, it, it, I kind of agree with Cora there. I'll I'll. I'll Go into that when we talk about our pipes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, three stars. He says, a solid Holmes mystery. All of the points are laid out in front of you to see, though, of the two major ones, I missed one. End quote. He's not very observant, is he? Holmes would be very disappointed. He would. Sergio says, two-star rating, quote, very promising start, only to be void of action altogether, end quote. I disagree with that, but I think he has a different perspective of action than we do. Mm-hmm. Chris says, five stars. An exercise in analytical thinking has a dash of surprising action at the end that kept me up later, just a tad past when I should have gone to bed the day before my physics midterm. It was totally worth it, end quote. <laughs> Now I don't know about that. That's something you have to personally quantify. Yeah, but that's when that's when a review turns into a Facebook post. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what happened here. <laughs> anyway, I've got a plot summary for the stockbroker's clerk. Let's just get right into business, buddy. Stockbroker's clerk. Here we go. <laughs> clerk. Here we go. Right. As I'm doing this, you go find out what a clerk is. A plurk, yeah. On top of that, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Go call my lawyer in on my testament. <laughs> I'm gonna have so it's written on my tombstone. Did not like prefaces. Mm-hmm. You should do that. Here we go. This is a, yeah. This is a preface. No prefaces. No, not at all. No. <laughs> the adventure of the stockbroker's clerk. Three months after buying out the swollen medical practice of old Mister Farkar and assuming his clients in a magnanimously capitalist venture, Watson was starting to feel the pangs of separation anxiety from Baker Street. As if beckoned by an invisible tug rope, Sherlock arrives at the door of his Paddington practice and encourages him to drop the gauze and iodine for the day and travel with him to Birmingham. After a short repartee concerning Watson's slippers and steps, enough 
irritating performance to make up for three months of absence, Holmes leads his happy chronicler into a four-wheel carriage and into the immediate company of his client, Mr. Hall Pycroft, (laughs) stockbroking clerk and man of numbers. Once the trio are comfortably settled within the train's first-class car, no need to ride in steerage incognito or with cattle in this case, the dapper Pycroft tells his story in full, bringing Watson and the reader up to speed. Now, when it comes to pruning employment and handling market crunch, it's the unspoken company rule of last in, first out that dictates fate, and like many young men of business, Pycroft recently found himself jobless and in the midst of a perfect frost of opportunity. But perseverance paid off, and less than a week ago, he answered an advertisement, curiously by letter only, from one of London's greatest stockbroking firms, Mawson and Williams, who showed an interest in hiring him. All he needed to do was show up in person on Monday, make a formality of the person-to-person interview part, and begin working. Sounds like everyday life. Everyday life. It offered an extra pound per week for ostensibly the same duties as he had been performing at his previous job. Winner. Only, to use Pycroft's own words, now I come to the queer part. On that (laughs) very night of having accepted the job, and in the midst of enjoying a celebratory smoke, a middle-aged man with a sheeny about the nose... Yes, that's a pejorative term for Jewishness. Named Arthur Pinner presented himself at Pycroft's rented accommodation, acting in his official, supposed, official, capacity as financial agent. Pinner wastes little time in shit-flinging the flattery and convinces our young Cockney clerk that he is well-known and respected about London despite his age and inexperience. Pinner reeks of falsehood, even to the first-time reader, but he manages to cement his authority and conviction by testing Pycroft on the facts and figures of the exchange. Pinner then delivers his masterstroke by offering Pycroft the position of business manager of the Franco Midland Hardware Company, a largely French outfit with 134 branches. He'd be working out of Birmingham to begin with and would report to Arthur's brother, Harry, managing director. The pay packet is more than seductive for the young caller. It's downright hedonistic at £500 per year with an additional 1% commission on all agent-directed business. Though he momentarily questions it, Temptation, that old bedfellow to human folly, performs the last word, and it's all Pycraft can do to keep his boner below the belt. With his legs crossed and his groin throbbing at the prospect of meeting some sweet Birmingham ladies, he agrees to be there in person on Monday morning. To seal the deal, Pinner demands a handwritten note of acceptance and manipulates a young clerk's resignation from his other brand new job at Mawson and Williams to suit his own terms. Still stunned by the promised fortune of being a rich man in Birmingham, None of the alarm bells that are ringing so obviously for us seem to register on Pycroft's impetuous radar. It feels like Shylock just stepped off the Shakespearean stage and into this book for his most calculating ripoff with interest and took Pycroft for a serious ride. Anyway, my bond. <laughs> anyway, Pycroft's retelling concludes with details of his trip to Birmingham to meet Harry Penner the next morning. Well, Harry turns out to look very much like his brother from the night before, apart from being clean-shaven and a little lighter in hair. They even share the same gold fillings. This, it seems, is one of the only factors that doesn't fly under Pycroft's radar. And, excited, he's led into an upstairs office without furniture, without files, without other employees. Told that the premises are only temporary, the eager clerk goes along with things and doesn't even ask questions when he's instructed to circle ads in the yellow pages and compose a list of furniture shops. Does he have red hair? Who who knew that these were the chief skills required to manage Fortune 500 companies? Circling and highlighting. You know. Very clearly, this is a make-work job, and everybody, even Pycroft, finally, senses that something more pernicious is going on behind the scenes. 
He sees his day out with the understanding, though, that he'll report back to Birmingham headquarters the following evening. On his return to London, however, Pycroft trusts his instincts and consults with Sherlock Holmes on the blooming strangeness of his situation. With this, the narrative's past becomes the present, and we return to the first-class carriage that's just arriving into Birmingham. Posing as two of his friends in search of work, Holmes and Watson gain easy entry into their covers, and they scale five flights of stairs of the Corporation Street office in order to meet Pycroft's managing director in the flesh. Pinner, sitting down and bowling over the newspaper, looks as grief-stricken as any man possibly could this side of six feet under, and Watson goes to, sam- goes to some length in his description of perspiration and the paleness of complexion. After some perfunctory chatter, Pinner excuses himself for three minutes, it's quite precise, as Holmes, Watson, and the stockbroker's clerk wait in the empty office. Holmes's lupine ears pick up on a rat-tat-tat coming from behind the door of the adjoining room, and, bursting through, the three men find Pinner trying to hang himself in the cupboard. Watson quickly administers some YMCA disco moves to his chest and arms, and brings Pinner back around, at least to semi-consciousness. As they peruse the newspaper that drew Pinner with such magnetic force, everything is connected by an irritated Sherlock, who clearly thinks that his companions should now by this time, be more alert. Chiding them, he explains, enlightened as he is by the evening standard, let the record show, that the whole thing was a case of identity theft in an effort to lighten Mawson and Williams, Pycroft's would-be employers, of a considerable fortune in Sterling. Now, there are some inconsistencies and gaps in Doyle's writing that demand we suspend our disbelief a bit, but the ruse basically runs like this. Arthur and Harry Pinner were, quite literally, nobodies. They were fake identities assumed by the master forger Beddington and his brother, both fresh from jail. On the lookout for a gullible sod, they found one in the ambitious Hal Pycroft and pretended to offer him a job out of town while they stole his real job in town with the famous financial house. It was an easy enough slip to cover as Mawson and Williams only instructed the young clerk to communicate his intentions in writing. Once Arthur had secured that during their first meeting, he handed it to his brother, who would do all the magic work on locks and safes from the inside, while he, Arthur, rushed back up to Birmingham to become the other brother, managing director Harry. It's an exhausting charade, to be sure, but what a payday if it were successful. The proverbial shit of the plan hit the next-level fan when Beddington murdered one of the firm's security guards in a botched effort to skulk back in and get busy with the combination locks. That was the news that his brother was reading as Pycroft came in with Holmes and Watson. No wonder he appeared, as Watson recalls, quote, as white as a fish's belly. His brother was captured, and it was only a matter of time before the fuzz got to him. Hence the attempt at suspending himself in the cupboard like a chunk of charcuterie to go in a final asphyxiating game of Cat's Cradle. In an ironic sense, though, there's not a lot of separating the Beddington brothers and Hall Pycraft in this story, apart, of course, from the scale of moral integrity and its registering marks on each man. All are subject to the same vice of avarice. One just looks better than the other because he's a wide-eyed clerk and wants his get-rich-quick scheme to be above board. Interestingly, Conan Doyle layers this story like a cautionary, ambition-flavored lasagna. Its aroma isn't dissimilar to bites earlier enjoyed in The Adventure of the Red-Headed League, though it is less potent. In some ways, the stockbroker's clerk does feel a lot like its superior predecessor. But hey, if you're going to copy yourself, you might as well do it with one of your best efforts. That's some cheesy lasagna. Garfield would approve. (laughs) He would. And that's that. Plot summary done. So are we ready to... Light pipes, or have you got something to say? Let's light the pipes. What flavor pipe are we after today? Old Toby. No, sorry. Uh, that's a Lord of the Rings reference. Uh, let's go for... It's the second time in the series we've done. you've done that. You know, you've made that reference twice now. 
when I think of pipes, I can't think of hobbits. It just it just occurs to me that way. Um, <laughs> I would say probably, uh, you know, some opium maybe. Okay, Chase fetch the dragon. <laughs> fetch it from the cupboard, would you? <laughs> I had to call. So I had to call a guy who knows a guy. Here we go. Pipes are lit. So I'm actually trying to find that reference here of Watson speaking to his wife, the former Mrs. Uh, what was his wife's last name again? Marston. Marston. Mrs. Yeah, the, the former. And I take it you're having so the no note luck. To my neighbor, rushed upstairs to explain the matter to my wife and join Holmes upon the doorstep. Hang on, dude. Hang on. Hang on. You got to do that again. The signal cut out for a second. Just uh, read me that bit again. All right. So just before he leaves to go into the cab in the cab to meet Pycroft, mm -hmm. uh, in an instant he responds to Holmes, and I scribbled a note to my neighbor. Rushed upstairs to explain the matter to my wife and join Holmes upon the doorstep. Okay. Your neighbor is a doctor, said he, nodding at the brass plate. And then so on and so forth. Holmes' deduction of uh, that he had better stairs and had better practice than the other guy or something like that. Cool. Does, question before we begin. Yeah. Does the, I couldn't, does the um, annotated version you have, do they describe what the St. Vetus dance is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what uh, Dr. Farquhar was suffering from? It does, indeed. Um, I knew what St. Vitus's dance was beforehand because oh. it's also the title of a Black Sabbath song, and I remember being 17, 18, wondering what the hell that was, so I looked into it. It's uh, basically a neurological condition, that, that kind of a degenerative thing that affects the, the muscles, and you end up kind of shaking and dancing about. Um, that, that's, a very, that's a very poor medical explanation of it, but if you grant me a second, um, I'll, I'll find it for you. That's interesting. You mentioned St. Vetus' dance and then that Black Sabbath did the song because here we have in the same story a set in Birmingham, England. And of course, you know where Black Sabbath is from. Indeed. Maybe, maybe it's all, maybe they were really big on their homes. They, well, and, and lived in Birmingham. Yeah, maybe. But, they, but I'm sure though, if this was a famous, if the Sherlock Holmes being famous that he was, Birmingham is probably very proud of this story that it took place there. Yeah, oh, I would think so. Okay, I've got I've got your annotation here. The former name for chorea or Sindenum's chorea, Saint Vitus's dance, is the disease of the nervous system characterized by involuntary irregular contractions of the facial and other muscles. Saint Vitus himself was a patron saint of dancers, and in the Middle Ages, those afflicted with the disease were said to worship at his shrine. Saint Vitus's Better dance is a, I guess. It's, it tends to be a children's disease and frequently arises as a complication of rheumatic fever. Mr. Farkar, oh, whose malady was of the nature of Saint Vitus's dance, presumably suffered instead from the more serious Huntington's disease, which is hereditary yeah. and tends to be diagnosed first in middle age. That that sounds more like it to me. And just that there was a lack of medical acumen back then when it came to that stuff. Yeah, indeed there was. They were still putting women in asylums for hysteria, right? Because they were cramping and everything like that yeah and i actually was surprised to learn how little they knew about uh, respiration as well they knew how the body worked but the whole idea of you know lifting someone's arms and uh moving them up and 
you know, literally like you'd see in a cartoon, if your lungs are full of water, hold the arms over the head and, and kind of like uh, push them down like you're doing a lever or something and it, the water spouts out, you know, like you're, you're pumping it out. That type, yeah. of, that type of knowledge that uh, Watson kind of engages in, or sorry, uh, exercises here at the end is a little funny to read on the page, given what we know <laughs> today, but it was of its time. Anyway, it was of its time, absolutely. Lighten our pipes, we got principles, we've got investigation, we've got perpetrators, we've got environment, we've got secondary or supporting players, those are the pipes, are we ready to do this? <laughs> You remind me of, uh, you know, the monorail episode of The Simpsons. We got monorails from Ogdensville, North Haversbrook. And by golly, that put them on the map. Let's just hope our show doesn't go like the aforementioned monorail on The Simpsons. No, or like The Simpsons, which is probably... like I saw something interesting online there earlier in the week. It was like someone had, had tried to mathematically, um, and I use that phrase loosely, but it basically, it basically tried to like... Uh, do a uh, like a, a longitudinal study of all the Simpsons episodes and chart by plotting them on a graph when the show started to go downhill, and like it's it's really quite funny because it's done on an axis, right? You've got a horizontal and a vertical axis that you know correspond to different features and facets of the show or characters, and and then you've got all these different shows. It's it's quite a exhaustive little study, but uh, I can't even remember for all that which one they said it was, but I think it was around Mr. Burns's when he was shot. I think is when they say the show started to go down. I, th- I, th- I think after that, yeah. I would say the first 10 seasons are like the glory years of The Simpsons, and then after that it just... Mm. I remember the that... I remember them saying the first seven seasons. Yeah, the first but... seven were... Because were, I think it was season eight was when the Burns thing happened, right? Uh, but you're still dealing with someone else's opinion, aren't you? You really are, but I, I don't know. I personally, I know. I think it's because a lot of the writers who made The Simpsons so good left the series, like Conan O'Brien and uh, Jennifer Crittenden and all those people, and, and they moved on, and it mm. just wasn't as strong as, the writers weren't as strong as the ones. And then they try to compete with Family Guy afterwards. and mm, That's right. And yeah. I'm not saying Family Guy is a bastion of wit, you know, but I think I think for some reason they, they just went really down low on the budget with the Simpsons and they didn't, they, they just realized they had a pop culture phenomenon. So why bother put effort into it if you don't have to, right? Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, speaking but moving of, on, let's speaking get of opinions, though. Yeah. Clerk. Let, yeah, let's get on to our principles. Okay, well, here, I got a question for you then, which kind of leads into our principles. Uh, I'm wondering how Watson was able to afford purchasing another doctor's practice when if this is close to sign of four, he makes a mention in the sign of the four, or he bemoans his financial situation. Now, I didn't remember all of this at first. I just remember him not having a lot of money and that being a chief concern in marrying Mary or in asking for her hand. But ultimately, love did what love did and he, he proposed. But I went back and I went back and looked into it. And I also used the annotated copies of uh, Klinger's work here. And indeed, I'm, I'm correct. There was a mention at this time, in the sign of the four, around the same time, of him being quite poor, how yes. the hell did he manage to buy another doctor's practice then? Mary. Because remember the fortune uh, Colonel Morstan had, right? She just gave it over to him? She, well, she obviously, uh, she's her husband, right? So it's like, I don't know, whatever the marriage laws mm. are there back then, I assume. I guess so, yeah. I, I Yeah, and you know what, you're right. I guess that, that makes sense, because... Like every, other, like, like every other man in this series so far, if he has any sniff of a female's cash, he just he just hoards it. 
<laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay. Right. Well, I guess that answers me. I mean, I I don't really intend to get caught up in like the chronology of mistakes, you know, that Doyle may or may not make. But uh, if it's his own money, it, it, fair enough. But I, I don't know. I just think it would have been tipping his hat to the other story if he had said thanks to the endowment of my wife and the treasure, blah, blah, blah. It would, yeah, absolutely. It would definitely have some continuity in there. But I guess people back then weren't as strong as continuity as 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 today's, you know, people, you know, overlooking every episode of Star Trek going, mm. oh, well, this doesn't represent that. And uh, he never, why can they allude to that? You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not like comic book guy, right? Nowadays, I'm not going so. to do that. I'll leave searching out these uh, continuity errors to some other people because that's not really what we're doing. But I just thought it was interesting in starting this. Like, where did he get the Skrilla to do that? But there's also another discrepancy they mentioned in the Gloria Scott that I'll get into, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, every now and then you're going to notice these kind of things. It's almost like yeah. almost like it's a it's one of those because because it's, it's like a, a serial almost. It's it's like a modern comic book series where tw- tw- twenty years of stories leads to a lot of continuity errors, and you know mm-hmm. what I mean. True, true. And the funny thing is though is that instead of but you have those continuity errors because you have so many different writers working on the project. But here we only have one author, right? So you got to give him some 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 credit with what he was juggling with. That's true. Yeah, he's probably got nobody proofreading for these little mistakes in quite the same way as, like you say, a team of writers would. And also, he's a human, and also he, you know, he's he doesn't know anything really at this stage. So a little slip here and there, who gives a shit, right? Yeah, we'll give him the human part. That's good enough. Good enough. Okay. Uh, well. What do you what do you make of all this then, Josh? And the principal's role. The principal's role. I gave it a. I think three point five is a fair score. I found like the exchange between Holmes and Watson. Um, it had a really strong like quid pro quo to it. Like Holmes comes to Watson like a supplicant wanting help. Um, and 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 uh, I did like that relationship of how you know we established what Watson is like after his marriage. And Holmes coming to Watson for assistance, and you know, he's, you know, Holmes is probably lonely in his own kind of way, and misses his buddy of all his past adventures, and he wants, you know, to uh, keep that fire going, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Pycroft's tale is a perfect way to way to do it, and uh, he knows that Watson also uh, uh, would probably secretly want it as well, despite you know enjoying his practice and, and the married life. Uh, and Holmes, you know, is, is already, you know, like, just goes right back to form as soon as they encounter encounter each other. Noticing, like, the slippers. Uh, that's a crazy deduction, by the way, how he came up with the whole thing with the, the burned-off, like, hieroglyphics yeah. from the from the slippers and, and everything. And, and the whole thing about the steps. And I'm like, wow, he's just going into a really crazy mode of, de- of deduction. Maybe his deduction is, maybe because he's, he's, he's about to practice, you know, he's not with Watson anymore that his deduction just go overboard now maybe he just analyzes everything yeah it's kind of, it's kind of like uh, when i guess you're separated from someone that you're in a relationship with for a long time and you're not getting busy in the sheets and you know you just get a little excited maybe a little bit uh, a little bit too quick a little bit too uh, too over the top you know thing, things tend to get out of control yeah yeah that's what yeah he might, he might have had a little bit of uh uh, neediness, perhaps, kind of, kind of, kind of being being displayed there, perhaps. <laughs> mm, yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking. Uh, yeah, yeah. We we needn't spell out what I was thinking. It's uh, it's gutter chat. Yeah, but to be honest, though, moving on with Holmes in this story, um, he seems like even Watson at this point. They're almost like reactive observers in this tale, 
because we're kind of getting another variation on the engineer's thumb here, wherein the protagonist is Pi is is Pycroft, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. And it's 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 his his it's it's his being um, roped in by these by the Beddington brothers here that uh, is, is is the story. And Holmes in him Holmes has that like you know moment of Deus ex machina again at the end where he puts everything together through a newspaper article. But and and. Uh, you see too that Holmes is actually he kind of likes Pycroft, and because the whole moment where uh, Pycroft points out, you know, he saw the gold cap tooth in the first Pinner brother, mm-hmm. and then in the second Pinner brother, and Holmes was following along with them in the same way. They're on the same wavelength. So I also got an impression that Holmes kind of liked uh, Pycroft a bit. So it was nice to see him kind of spreading out his social, his, you know, he's trying to spread out, spread out socially in his own kind of way. So. I, there was there was a couple of nuances here that I kind of I kind of appreciated, so that's why I give it three point five. You went three point five, okay? I, I didn't go that far. I went for a three, and okay. I went for a three out of five on the stockbroker's clerk for principles because, I, like you said, like yeah, okay, they had some witty repartee at the beginning, but and they, and they, he did kind of have some subtle charms for Pycroft. I feel that you're right in what you say, but. He did basically just put it all together through a newspaper ad. All he did was sit in a carriage, listen to the guy, and show up in the office, and then everything came together for him. I don't think this was great deduction. That's why I think I think Conan Doyle knew that too, and gives us that scene with the slippers and the steps at the beginning because that's <laughs> this this is Holmes doing basically all he's going to do in this episode. Uh, I yeah, did... he has to. He has. He had to put that in there in the beginning to fulfill the Holmes awesome deduction quota. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. I, I I do also find it quite funny though, like this method of restoring breath. That at um, can I, I want to read that a little bit? No, I don't want to read it. It's other bits well, we can read. But... I, 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 it's also kind of funny too because even though Pycroft is being kind of roped in by these guys, you kind of feel that he's unobservant and an ambitious young man. But he seems kind of a smart cookie in his own way, and his own ambitions are is what kind of almost leads to his downfall here, right? Well, yes, that's right. And there's something about Pycroft and those ambitions that I think, well, I alluded to in the plot summary, but when we get to them, I'm really going to talk about it overall with this investigation. So I I would just say that what you are about to say, hold on to it, because I think we're on the same page and we're going to talk about it in a few minutes if you're cool with that. Yeah, I just found that Holmes' deduction at the end kind of and and you know and Pycroft saying what a blind beetle I've been mm-hmm. it, it 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 just kind of made him look more stupid than he should have that's my opinion on it and so that's why I think the DSS Machina just kind of falls weak in this story and the exchange between Holmes and Watson and his like for Pycroft and just a little Holmesian moments make up for that in my opinion but mm-hmm. uh, again I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to four on this you went a little lower but I, I'm staying at 3.5 all right no problem um I just said a few moments ago about this, like when I saw Watson try to restore the breath of uh, Beddington's brother after he tried to kill himself, um, I was I found it quite amusing because he was like shaking his arms up and down and doing all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I wanted also to understand what was going on. And I knew that he, his character was a medical doctor and I knew also that Conan Doyle was a medical doctor. So I decided to look into it because let's face it, uh, early forms of CPR, we don't know anything about unless you are you know a paramedic or a, a physician so i looked into it and i'll share this a little bit with you because i found it interesting uh the method of restoring breath that we see here in this story right the arms up and all that stuff 
It was devised by a guy named Henry Robert Sylvester, and is described in the British Medicine Journal of 1858 as a new method of resuscitation, still or of resuscitating for stillborn children and for restoring a person drowned or dead. So you raise the arms, which expands the rib cage. You lower the arms, which forces the expiration of air against the chest. And then you sit or you press weight against the chest, right? That, that's the idea that we see repeated here by Watson. Um, adaptations of this technique, including pressure to the chest and back while lifting the arms, followed. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation didn't become standard until the 1950s. So you had almost 100 years of this type of lift the arms, uh, lower the arms, lift the arms, lower the arms type resuscitation practice that was used commonly until the 1950s. Vic, the, and, the human the human lungs are no longer used as a bellows, I guess. <laughs> exactly, but it does kind of make sense too if you think about it. With the Victoria, and we've talked about this on the show before, but the Victorians' discomfort with touching strangers was almost certainly going to affect the survival rate in cases like these. Because even if the knowledge of respiration existed, there's no way you're going to get strangers touching each other's mouths. No, not back in the days of jolly old Victorian England. Anyway, I just I thought that was interesting. Penny um, Boucher, Governor. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I thought that was was interesting because I learned a little something out of that I never knew before. But that's why Watson's doing what he's doing because it is of the time and quite a contemporary practice in resuscitating, and it works, you know, for whatever else, whether it's a narrative ploy or not. He comes back to life, and and oh, apparently the whole throwing water in the face is not something that they would have done at the time, but Watson does it. Maybe he just wanted to. More like, more like perhaps Conan Doyle did not think that they would find the resuscitation convincing for some readers, hmm. and that water in the face always restores people after they've fainted or they've tried hanging themselves. That's a good point, yeah. So that maybe is Doyle thinking of the reader and the common man. That's exactly, that's, yeah. what, I, that's, what, I, that's what I thought. Good and shout. that was the one moment that took me out of that scene, because to me, that was actually a rather tense moment. Now you, I can tell... Because I guess maybe you know more about CPR than I do. You just—I never really caught on to like the, the the ridiculousness of the type of uh, resuscitation that Watson was doing there. So I found that whole scene tense up until like you know the water in the face. I just found that kind of like overkill, you know. Mm. Well, I I don't. Yeah, I'm not trying to say that it was laughable. I did feel the tension at the end of the story there, particularly because it's quite gruesome too. Like if you think about it, imagistically, it's quite a gruesome scene. You know, these guys seeing the guy struggle and, and bringing him back to life. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I've had to do CPR through school. Or, sorry, I had to do first aid through school, and I updated it last year. But of course, when Rosanna was born, Sarah and I did an infant um, first aid too. So I guess I have. You might be right. Yeah. Unconsciously, I've had a lot of this. I've been thinking about it, maybe, or whatever, and it, it did kind of read funny to me, but anyway. I had a partial trigger, too, when I was reading it, because I remember uh, the whole, like, him hanging himself, up, you know, behind the door in the closet or whatever. Yeah. There's, like, a, there's a scene in uh, the fifth season of Mad Men where a character hangs himself, and it was just such a gritty kind of visceral scene, and that just mm. reminded me of that, and just the struggling that went on, you know, and uh, I, I was just, I guess those visuals that I saw matching you know like what i was seeing what i was reading it was just it was very uncomfortable and i guess that that that, uh, that increased increase my tenseness yeah fair enough tenseness uh, inten- uh what's tension? the word tension yes there we go increase <laughs> my tension exactly <laughs> so yeah i found the climax as i said it, w- it was rather tense 
But the story as a whole, it, it seemed like a variation on the red-headed leak and the engineer's thumb, kind of like a hybrid of them almost. Mm-hmm. Like he's using these same elements, right? Like uh, hodgepodge. So you have Pycroft being the protagonist and Holmes and Watson hopping along with him until the third act, wherein Pycroft is shown as a rather daft, you know, despite his early moments of observation, like as I mentioned, the gold cap tooth and all that. So we have another story where all the hints are resolved in the climax through Holmes' deus ex machina. And what kept the intrigue of the story is, is that it kept me reading it. It made me interested in it is I, I like Pycraft. I like Pycroft. We know he was being swindled and we wanted to see what it led to. And I think that's what created like that ambiguity that made it uh, interesting uh, or just simply, I guess, intriguing that kept me going, you know, uh, unlike uh, where it did not follow the same kind of formula as other Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, fair enough. So... Um, I gave it a 3.5. That was my uh, investigation. book on the investigation and the writing as a whole and everything. All right. Is there a particular moment from the story that you'd like to share that you know you think highlights that well? Or well, I'm not. I'm not saying go find one. I mean, it's cool if you don't. Um, I, I just didn't um, like. I, I kind of felt like you did, but I have. I think the inconsistency spoke to me a little bit more. I can see that. Uh, the, the, it feels like a three. It. it feels like a three or a four, uh, but there are things that just don't match up here that make it feel like a two. So for me, I mean, mm. my scoring system. I'm I'm growing much more comfortable in my scoring system now, um, and I, I'm just curious on on if there's something you'd like to share from the detail. I guess. I think it's clearly a matter of of opinion here. Yeah, I think that yeah. would, that would that you know separates the difference between a three point five and and a two here. And there's maybe there's just elements in the story, as I mentioned. You know, this reminded me of something else from like another show or movie I watched. And so I'm getting a lot of maybe a lot of nostalgia feeding into to the story and the different elements and how like, I visualize the actions going on and and that how I really like the Pycroft character. Like I really think I could have watched like or read a story about this guy as a whole. You know, I think he would have been an interesting protagonist and almost like a uh a, a fitzgerald hero in his own way in victorian england right and seeing how his character would would it would end up and i guess there's a lot of potential in this story that i saw mm-hmm. and maybe i just enjoyed the potential so much that it made me blind maybe to some of the inconsistencies that you picked up well uh, much stronger than i than i did look man i, I i'm gonna surprise you here because although i'm pointing out these inconsistencies and i see things a little different to you i still gave this investigation a 3.5 but i like what you say there about um, him as a Fitzgerald, I think that's quite a nice point, as a Fitzgerald type of character, kind of searching for a green light, you know, and, and not quite getting it. But um, I I would, I gave it a 3.5, same mark as you did. I feel like it's weaker than this, but one of the reasons why I really like it, and I just, I, I just offer this to you and see what you think. Basically, what you've got here is an identity theft. You've, yes. got, you've got somebody... So a, a partnership of brothers preying on a stupid guy, taking his identity uh, for the sake of getting rich, right? Or, or taking advantage of him. Now, the reason I like this investigation from a modern point of view is because we live in a world where this is actually very, very acute behavior. You think about internet predation. It's very probable yes. identity theft, you know, liquidating someone's bank account. These types of things happen all the time around us. And so while it is distant in its events perhaps 
And, you know, that the scale of what they're trying to do, the scale of their trickery is is bigger and the facets of it a little, you know, a little fuzzier, maybe it it nevertheless boils down to two people trying to take advantage of another guy to get something that they want and leave him in the shit. And that identity theft particularly makes me think of online a misdemeanor, which I just think it speaks uh, quite strongly. Like fishing or even catfishing, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Things like that. So, yeah, I've got notes here on on inconsistencies in the investigation, uh, but I really feel as though the modernity of the story speaks because identity theft is, you know, I don't know how modern it was at the time, but it's kind of probably impersonation. I mean, think about Clodius way back in ancient Rome, you know, uh, uh, dressing up as a woman at the party, right? Yes. Like, this kind of st- that was a terrible segue for anybody wondering what the hell I'm on about, but it was basically it wasn't a vestal event, was it? What was it? The Clo- uh, Clodius so got dressed up. What we're talking up. about is there's a series of novels about ancient Rome, about the fall of the Roman Republic by Colin McCullough, and one of the historical figures that takes that that's in the that's in the narrative in one of the uh, in the later books of the series is Publius Clodius, who was a Claudi- patrician Claudian who took the uh, who adopted him, himself as a as a a, ple, a plebeian Clodius, meaning that uh, they spell it C L O as opposed to C L A U, and this guy was basically from a rich, you know, aristocratic family, but decided to be a rabble rouser, a, a demagogue, and this guy's whole point of existence, it seemed, was to troll the patriciate, and one of the ways he would do that is just show up at like you know the ceremony of the Bonadea held by Caesar's mother. Uh, you know, which is like a very sacred festival, you know, held in the uh, in the in, in, in the uh, house of I don't know if it was the Vestal Virgins, but I think it was it was it was held by the um, in the house of the Pontifex Maximus, where Caesar mm-hmm. lived, mm-hmm. and his mother Aurelia, who was pretty much the master of the household there, she was the one who carried the Bonadea ceremony. So all the women of Rome would come and pray to Bonadea, you know, the mother goddess, so to speak. And uh, Publius Clodius showed up sacrilegiously dressed as a woman, uh, just trying to crash that whole party and just be a total shit disturber. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just it's just an example of uh, just people uh, trolling everybody, you know. And 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 it's a good illusion you, you were talking about with regard to uh, internet trolls, right? Yeah, people who I'm... just do this for fun, not so much for the ambition of stealing money, but also just just for shits and giggles. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely more than just shits and giggles, but I appreciate you putting the context into better uh, better focus for us there because my well, point... is that I did, to be honest. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, you are addicted to Divergent, as we've already said, and you just proved it there. But you did well because it was one that I had asked and requested. Anyway, uh, back to the point I was trying to make is that this type of behavior has been around, it's, it's ages old, and I, I find that although the investigation is weak with a lot of inconsistencies and you know just hang on here and suspend your disbelief there it still nevertheless is boiled down to you know a story of behavior that's still prevalent today and it's just taking its new form with online identity thefts and stuff so and people's bank accounts being broken into and all this stuff and so it you know so it, it works yeah so for its subject matter it 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 carries the the story past the score that it actually deserves in that respect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, on the point of investigations, although you know 3.5 is a decent mark, uh, I can't give it more because something really stood out for me, particularly Pycroft's new job, okay, with uh, Marcin Williams. 
The likelihood of him being offered a job by letter only and not meeting through an interview is very, very unlikely, particularly in a credit crunch environment. And there's all kinds of chat in my book about the Venezuelan um, crisis and what's gone on to the international markets and why everybody's out of work. And I could read that, but I don't think we need to. I was kind of curious to hear hear what that was all about. So that wasn't just some BS that Conan Doyle just made up to make it sound like it was something real happening. That actually did happen. It did. Do you want me to read you a little bit of that? Yeah, I was curious curious to see. If those who read the book and wondering what the Venezuelan and don't have the Venezuelan crisis was and don't have the annotated version like yourself there, no I problem. think it might be a little enlightening. All right. Well, here's what Klinger writes. Um, Throughout much of the 1800s, Venezuela was beset by financial and political difficulties owing to an unfortunate combination of civil wars, bad administration, debt, and complications arriving from the construction of railways and other public works. During this period, the main export of Venezuela, which had become an independent state in 1830, was coffee. When prices plummeted in the 1840s, a series of political struggles and volatile military dictatorships followed suit. The longest rule of this latter half of the century belonged to the, to the dictator, General Antonio Guzman Blanco, who restored peace but, having filled his own coffers in the process, was ousted from office in 1888 and eventually succeeded by his ally, General Joaquin, or Joaquin Crespo. During Crespo's troubled regime, relations with Great Britain deteriorated. Venezuela had in fact broken off diplomatic ties with Great Britain in 1887 over a territorial dispute which concerned land claimed by both Venezuela and British Guiana, now Guiana. The United States intervened, setting upon terms uh, setting upon terms most favorable to Great Britain in 1899. In the years to come, Venezuela's economic climate would decline even further, so substantial would accumulate un- so substantial were so substantially would accumulate unpaid foreign loans that became in 1902 too big for Britain to handle blah 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 so basically you've got this entire um, environment of uh, areas that the empire used to govern and now dealing with trying to pull money from the resources and much like you see saw in Afghanistan after uh, the liberation by the American forces and the coalition and like you're seeing in Iraq and you got all these places that are still are are free in name but aren't really free um because the, the imperial ties haven't been completely cut and the empire still is looking to soak dry anything it can get from the fruit you know and i guess relations aren't working a lot of money's going into the country that's not coming back out and jobs and the market are affected so i i don't pretend to understand that all but that's that's what Klinger gives us as an annotation oh interesting so okay well that puts a context into what is going on so you know this is causing the coffee trade to crumble probably decimated the markets at the time mm-hmm. so maybe it just got to show the desperation of 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 uh of, of maybe mawson and williams like they what they heard this guy was good at good at what he did and from da- down the grapevine and that's why they hired him yeah but the fact that they're one of the city's leading stock brokerage enterprises you know I, f- I find it very hard to believe that they would just accept this guy who was one of many new remember he's a he's a young wide-eyed uh, apprentice really in the in, uh, clerk so I, I find it weird that they would just give him this job but it is it is at the same time though like the note i've just scribbled down here it's like it seems that this is the very omission of employment standards that the story depends on in order to work because if it True. was a personal interview then the beddingtons would never have have got it right it's only because no. Moss and williams don't know what he looks like that the pinners can steal the identity yeah. plus 
When the new clerk presented himself for duty using Pinner's name, they'd surely be surprised to see a middle-aged guy there with traces of foreign origin instead of a young blonde city man, wouldn't they? Like, yeah. it just kind of, it all hinges on some unrealistic conveniences to, for me, which detract yeah. from the story. But the fact that like, it's, it, it's narratively sound in, in the way, because uh-huh. it can, because it's narratively sound, but in terms of like how we would relate to it in real life, it, it sticks out as being kind of unrealistic. Yeah. And you know what, for me personally, the most unrealistic part, and if you can fill this gap, then please do so. Or if you can mm-hmm. answer this, how, unless he was being followed, like every single movement, he was being followed. How would Pinner have known that Pycroft was employed at Marston Williams in the first place? As he so certainly did during the first engagement. How, how would he know that he got this job? Yeah. And that kind of go that, 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 that is definitely a mystery. And this can go back to, you know, why Moss and Williams hired this guy in the first place without an interview. Right. There's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. anyway, I mean, th- there are inconsistencies here that there's, I feel... there's some loose ends. I think that needed to be tied up in the end, right. but I did. I mean, the redheaded league was one of my favorite stories. So I'm not upset to see something modeled off that same thing. You know, it's, it's like a James Horner score from the nineties, you know, Braveheart's great. And so while you might not really admire everything about what comes after the, the Irish music still has a certain charm to it. It does. It does. But charm is charm, right? Uh, like Pycroft himself. So That's let's right. take a look at our perpetrators. Okay. Um, our perpetrators, for me personally, I gave them a three. I found they were interesting, um, though I, I don't know. Like, I, they weren't really that interesting to me. I found, I found the whole Jewish stereotype a little bit, um, a little bit off-putting, to be honest. The sheeny, the way he looked like he, he couldn't, he couldn't have been um uh, a guy after money unless he had some sort of foreign jewish type of i, I don't know I, that's that's why i made the comparison to shylock because i just felt like there's something deliberate going on here i'm not saying that the story's anti-semitic i don't think it is but why you know why couldn't you have just described him as foreign like why why did he have to have a jewish look about him yeah uh, that I, I felt that was disingenuous and it, yeah i did not pick up on the on that at all when I read the story, so I wasn't really picture, picturing a Jewish guy at all. And I guess I didn't. I guess I, I must have. I saw the I saw the description of the Sheeny about his nose, and I was like, well, I don't have the annotated version, and I'm just going to assume that's something that I think it is. And and then it wasn't obviously. I thought maybe he he had like a snuff in his nose or something like that. Like I just right. didn't. Uh, or he was or Sheeny. I was referring to shiny. Maybe he looked like he was a bit of an alcoholic or something, uh-huh. like a red nose. That's what you I know? thought at first as well. I mean, I'm not I'm not sitting here pretending that I knew what it was. It's a rather archaic expression, but that's exactly what it refers to. Oh, really? Well, mm. uh, you see, because I actually found Pinner. I like I liked the affable evil of him, uh, and especially in his machinations. And he was even pitiable. We know with his attempted suicide after hearing about his partner's slash brother's death, right? Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. hints that this is this was you know this is this is a family affair, and I found him a sympathetic kind of villain. And even though he tried to hang himself, he's gonna probably end up on the gallows anyways. Uh, you know, like it just seemed like these guys weren't your typical type of Sherlock Holmes villains, in my opinion. They weren't as nastily evil like the guy in the red-headed league. What was his name? The the famous uh uh. Oh, well, John somebody what was the guy's name in the um the guy the who was trying to burrow the tunnel under the street yeah like he wasn't yeah. like a mastermind like that you know like they just had, they were just like these poor souls who had, well had he was I mean he's money. described he's described in the story as a master locksmith like he he's obviously they've just come out of jail he's obviously very good Beddington 
you know, he, he's his name is like Houdini, Beddington. That's all we know. But I mean, Beddington, yeah, but I'm not really referring to Beddington because I, really yeah. I never got a really a strong impression of his character. The uh, Arthur slash Harry Pinner stood out a bit for me as in terms of like a of, of, of a perpetrator here. Yeah, he is and, the brother we see more of. Exactly, exactly, and uh, I don't know. Like, I just found him kind of like a pathetic kind of villain, and uh, I, I, that made him more interesting to me. So I gave him a four, actually. Okay, cool. That's all right. Um, no problem. What about the environment, Josh? What did you like of this story? The Birmingham, the uh, Birmingham was the highlight for me. I mean, I, I know what Birmingham looks like. You know, like it's like this. Now, like I said, even like up up until now, it's like. These, these, the, it's like a steel town of England, right? Like of north of north of uh, London, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, and I've seen, you know, I've seen it portrayed in various different uh, uh, media. There's like a, sh- a show on BBC c- called uh, Peaky Blinders, all about the gangs that ran in the 1920s there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Birmingham, you know, and that's how I visualize it. And I think Conan Doyle did it was a great way of capturing that, like. The dilapidated office square and the walk up to the empty offices. Then you have Pinner sitting at the desk with all this nothingness around him. The town itself, you know, and and how like it's just like a like really when I read the stories like he's going working in Birmingham, like you know this is like one of the big slums of north of you know north just north of London, right? So again, you're missing the the alarm bells. So there it created this this atmosphere of knowing this guy was going to a shady shady uh, situation. Well, yes and no. Uh, I mean, Birmingham, it was, and I mean, it's its own huge, it's the second largest city, I believe, in, in Great Britain. It, it is a massive city in its own right. So it's not like a slum of London. It is a, it's, it's a good couple hours north as well. Yes. So I, I, I don't know that we got that much description of the city. Certainly the office block and, uh, you know, the, the five flights of stairs and Corporation Street. Yeah, we get a good description of that. But I don't think we get a lot here on Birmingham. Um I, I didn't see as much as much to it as you did in terms of its vividness here. Uh, I went for a three. I was only a I was a three point five. So okay. I mean, it was it wasn't it didn't stand out too much for me. But uh, it just it was nice to be like, somewhere else. Yeah, nice to be some. It was nice to be somewhere else. And uh, I guess knowing what I knew of Birmingham at the time, maybe I just put those two things together with the story. All right, so let's finish up uh, with secondary characters. We've got really Pycroft himself, the client. And yeah. uh, you, you you could argue that Beddington is a secondary client, uh, <clears throat> sorry, secondary um, uh, player, be, but he's a perpetrator. So it's really just Pycroft we're dealing with. It really is. You know, it's a relatively weak, I think, a supporting cast. Uh, you know, like we, we have our surrogate principal Pycroft, you know, uh, here, who's a cockney lad you can root for in, in his own way, despite his, you know, his uh, mistakes. And Holmes even seems like, like like the fellow, as I mentioned earlier. And yeah, he you know, does, besides yeah. Arthur slash Harry Pinner, there really wasn't that much else. I mean, you mm-hmm. don't engage with Mawson or anyone else at the offices. You only hear about them after from what uh, Pinner tells uh, Pycroft about about Mawson. Yeah. And then after all, you know, we're, 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 and we have to remain in the dark like Pycroft about his former employer because for the impersonation racket to work in the first place. So yeah. a lot of things hinged upon that whole thing about him being hiring and not meeting Mawson and we, us not meeting Mawson either that would have basically un, made this unravel and prevented everything that was that happened at the end of the story from happening, you know? Mm-hmm. It, 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 it had a weak foundation, I think, as a whole, the, the uh, narrative. Yep, I don't disagree with you. What did and the you, supporting uh, cast belies that to me. What would you give him? 
Uh, I give supporting cast three. Okay, cool. That's, I believe, let me double check here. Yeah, I went for a three as well uh, in that one for supporting cast. Um, interestingly, uh, you're right. Holmes does seem to like him a little bit. Um, he describes himself yeah, as a soft Johnny, which I didn't know what the hell that was. So I looked it up. Apparently, that's an expression used to use you'd be used to describe an inexperienced youngster or a recruit. I think the context kind of helps you understand what it means, but in case you're wondering, that's what a soft Johnny means. It's interesting that's what though, I thought, yeah. because I Johnny is some cockney phrase. Well, Johnny's also a slang for a condom over here, uh, which, oh. <laughs> which is kind of funny, soft Johnny. Anyway, um, Watson's appraisal of Pycroft as a smart young city man, and that's the expression used, smart young city man, is apparently a nice way of saying he had a thick Cockney accent, but he was well-mannered and presented. And that made me want to look a little bit more into how like the Cockney, um, not, just, not Cockney slang, but how the Cockney personality was, was viewed at the time. And I learned this, which I think I'll share with you. Well, first of all, I should ask, because you are a man of genius, perhaps you know this. What is a Cockney? A Cockney, um, it's just someone from the south of London, isn't it? Uh, like a working class. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Cockney, technically and specifically, only those who live within hearing distance of the church bells of St. Mary Le Beau in Cheapside, East London, can call themselves Cockney. Oh, East London. Okay. It's that... I mean, if you come, if if you're a Cockney, you're considered to be a true Londoner because you were born and raised in the city itself, which grew around you. You know. I see. As so such, that's the you're story. one with the, you're one with the, you're one with the with the city itself. Yeah, more or less. You're not some like Lord like Lord Merchant's son coming in from the outside, like yeah. Chelsea or something, and moving into like offices downtown and whatnot, and then going back and forth. You know, you you live within the city itself, and. You can be from lower class up to middle class almost. And maybe, maybe that's why Holmes takes a shine to him a little bit because he values the fact that this is just an honest city boy who's trying to, yeah, he's ambitious as all hell, but he's making stupid mistakes for the sake of his, you know, his, oh, his greed. He's his a avarice. Baker Street a, a regular going in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way of looking at it, yeah. Well, look, uh, okay, that, that that's us with the scoring done. Um that's me at 15.5 for this story. And you, sir, are, let's see, that's 7 and 10. You are at 17.5, so you did like this a shade more than I did. Hmm. And, I thought we'd be, we'd, be, we'd be about even, actually. Well, yeah, I thought so, too. Um, there are parts to this story, though, that I would recommend and that I do really like. And as I said at the uh, at the outset, kind of playing off things that you've done before is okay if you're playing off things that worked. And the Red-Headed League worked, which is why this works. Plus that, given the fact that it's a story about identity theft, although no one particular component here did I really go skyrocket high with, it was all middling, but I felt that it's, it's a good story that works even today because of, you know, because of the things that, uh, that it, it, it presents thematically. Yeah, it, it has a t- sense of timelessness to it. And one of the things, Josh, that it presents thematically is this need and desire for money. I'm saying that Pycraft isn't that much different to the Beddington brothers uh, insofar as he wants to get rich. Everybody wants to get rich. That's something that, that has been part of humans ever since uh, money and purchase and commerce has been part of our DNA. That and, is true. And, and if you look at it, and yeah, if you ahead. look at it, how... At the beginning of the story, you know, we even have Watson at work too, right? Working in his at his practice, and 
mm-hmm. seems to be like you know working for a living and, and making a li- making a living in any way possible is the dominant theme of the story. Well, not just making a living, which he seemed to be doing, but buying another business so that he can make more of a living. Like there is this, I think, rather overt theme of avarice that goes through all of these characters. Maybe except Holmes. <laughs> well, he's just, yeah, he's just a pompous git. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, along that theme, though, our musical selection. It's time for musical selection, and today I've selected for us uh, a rather updated, uh, compared to many tracks we've played on the show, an updated thematic touch. Uh, I'm going to play Travi McCoy's Billionaire featuring Bruno Mars. Ooh. So I think this speaks well to the desires of all characters in the story, and I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, a different city every night. Oh, I, I swear the world better prepare for when I'm a billionaire. Yeah, I would have a show like Oprah. I would be the hoster every day Christmas. Give Travis a wish list. I'd probably pull an Angelina and Brad Pitt and adopt a bunch of babies that ain't never had shit. Give away a few Mercedes like, here, let me have this. And last but not least, grant somebody their last wish. It's been a couple months that I've been seeing go, so you can call me Travis Claus, minus the ho-ho. <laughs> Get it? i probably visit with Katrina here and damn sure do a lot more than FEMA did. Yeah, can't forget about me, stupid. Everywhere I go, I might have my own theme music. every time I close my So, can you really blame our perpetrators? Can you really blame Hall Pycroft for his naivety? Don't we all really, at the end of the day, just want to be billionaires? Yes and no. You don't want to be? The idea of a billionaire is appetizing, but the stigma that goes along with that and yeah, the other things is, is another thing on entirely, you know? And uh, It is. Uh, like everything great, there's always a catch, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's massive catch to being rich. Um, not least of which, I reckon, the fact that you're going to have all kinds of people that you never even heard about coming out the woodworks. Uh, give you a perfect example, uh, and I'm not going to name any names here. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not a millionaire. I'm hardly a thousandaire. But um, this is the year of my high school reunion. And interestingly enough, the people who I never heard from my entire life, or my high school career, really, because I was kind of on the fringes. I certainly wasn't a loner. I had great pals, and I played sports at school, and everybody knew me and liked me, but I wasn't with the in-crowd, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, Well, how surprised was I to find the in-crowd communicated with me uh, just a couple months ago with a very happy, a very, very, how you doing, pal, type thing. And that's cool, you know? Like, I don't hold any grudges. You know, I, I wasn't making effort consciously to be pally with them either back in high school so it goes both ways but i thought it interesting that now that i'm settled um i got an, an email just asking oh you're coming back home and blah 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 you're gonna do this i heard you're in scotland now that's great and all of that is quite fine the pleasantries are nice 
And then when I said, no, I'm not going to be able to come home, but, you know, my wife is still working. She's working as a solicitor and myself, you know, I'm on my summer holidays, but I won't be able to make it back, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what um, what prompted it, but all of a sudden there was the, oh, well, maybe you'd like to donate some money then if uh, you're going to be sitting around not doing anything. And I'd say, what do you mean donate some money? What, for people to get drunk at a high school reunion? Uh, oh, yeah, just to go into the club fund. So... It's funny. There's always going to be someone, hey, looking to steal your billions, your millions, or your thousands, or your dozens, if and when you show that you got some. And I think you're right what you're talking about with uh, the drawbacks to richness. Um, this is hardly, I guess that's as close. You know what? That's as close a billionaire story as I'm ever going to offer. There you go. And not only that, the adventure of the Gloria Scott, the next story, mm-hmm. deals with, also with uh, the 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 other side of being wealthy it does indeed and that's a lovely segue into you and your plot summary for the fifth story in the memoirs the glorious scott so the adventure the glorious scott was published in the strand in april 1893 uh going on to our people at goodreads uh these are some of the blurbs that i picked up so one reviewer and I, I'm not going to name any names here, you know, just in case they might be listening or whatever. And, uh, you know, don't want to have any kind of lawsuits because I know lawsuits are big these days, but we're not going to go into that. Mm-hmm. No, let's not. So five words. Perfect length for a cuppa. Yeah, that sounds to me like Cora, the uh, tea princess right there, buddy, because I think she starts all of her reviews. I say she. It's probably like this fucking company. But, Yeah. Yeah, not all, not it's everything she says. It, it's some it, bot. It's, it's a bot because that's at the beginning of all the reviews. But then some of the reviews are quite good. Like the, you know, they're not bad. I wasn't dissing Cora. Uh, I don't think it's you know. I mean, we're promoting her here in in this in this forum. So I don't think mm. we need to hide behind her uh, moniker. Anyway. No, but there's also uh, another one here. There really was no mystery in this one at all. Dot dot dot. Just a narrative of a tale, but quite a good one. Is Holmes' first case. It is told by Holmes to Watson in the first person. There are, sev- there are several distinctive and enjoyable aspects. Mm. This person likes aspects like I do. Mm. Um, in this regard. And just as vague sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> the story on how Holmes decided to become a consulting detective. Four stars. Brilliant hmm. review there. <laughs> um, Very helpful. Although this was essentially one narrative, it was a unique and interesting method of seeing the origin story of the famous detective. The tale was filled with a mutiny, blood, and blackmail, a perfect combination for a sailor's tale. Uh, that's a nice little, you know, Twitter tweet right there, you know, you know what? and that kind of uh, good, good idea what it's about. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But definitely there's a, a trend in all the reviews here that, you know, this is like the Batman Begins of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Sherlock Holmes here. A little, you know what I mean, setting up his origin story and whatnot. Yeah, it's, it's a big one among the, uh, the chroniclers as well and the real scholars. They, they love this story because... In it, they try to find so many different clues to, you know, things about, well, what, what house at uh, university did he live in? And, you know, what, yes. color, what color shoe polish was he wearing when he met blah, blah, blah. You know, there's all kinds of bullshit that circulates. And I'm saying bullshit. It's not bullshit, but it's... Uh, and what happened to the pit bull? That's what me. I want to know. What happened to the pit ah, bull? I got notes on the pit bull. I'll talk to you about that later. Okay. One person, this is my favorite review of this story. Okay, okay. One, one star review... One word, nope. <laughs> it just it just didn't speak to him, Josh. Or her, I think, in this case. Or but, her. Uh, right. Yeah. 
nope. Uh, <laughs> Class. Good story with an interesting solution. That was another one. So not exactly uh, Bartlett's quotations here. So. <laughs> no, it's not Rex Murphy on Holmes, that's for sure. Definitely not, or Ben Johnson or one of those scholars, you know? Yeah. Moving forward, uh, yeah, so we got the idea this is, you know, kind of like the origin story of Sherlock Holmes, and it's well known, too, because of the Gloria Scott mutiny, which is pretty exciting as a whole to read, uh, kind of taking you back into the whole, uh, in the first two novels, you know, the backstory, especially in, like, the uh, study in Scarlet, the, the Mormon backstory, and even into into a to a lesser extent the Indian backstory for Jonathan Small in the Sign of Four. Yeah, there's so, another there's another adventure here. There's another Stevenson feel to this one. Yeah, it, definitely. So let's uh, move into the summary that I kind of uh, have here for the uh, the adventure of the Gloria Scott. Awesome. We open with Sherlock and Watson getting themselves cozy in front of a fireplace. Cue the saxophones on a cold winter's light in London, where Holmes has become decidedly nostalgic and generous. For once, Holmes isn't Reagan on Dr. Watson's populist leanings when it comes to chronicling the escapades of the world's first consulting de detective. Instead, he offers up a flashback sequence within a flashback sequence, and before you can say Christopher Nolan, a mere sample of a letter escalates into the mutiny on the HMS Bounty slash revenge thriller slash prequel of sorts. Whew. Sorry, so, dude, I dropped my uh, bottle opener there. Oh, you dropped your mic? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, yeah, I dropped my mic. Yeah. So uh, I'll just start from the beginning then? No, 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 no. I heard everything. It was fine. It's just that last five seconds that I uh, dropped the mic. Okay, yeah. So so for once, Holmes isn't Reagan on Dr. Watson's populist leanings uh, when it comes to crawling the escapades of the world's first consulting detective. And we get this flashback within a flashback within a flashback sequence, uh, three different narrative voices here. And before you can say Christopher Nolan, a mere sample <laughs> of a letter escalates into something like the mutiny on the HMS bounty with a revenge thriller and with and a prequel of sorts. Uh, so Holmes presents Watson with a single missive written and worded in a fashion that could either discuss the taxation on trade routes in the most plodding way imaginable or something that something crazy old something that a crazy old man outside the liquor store would yell at the top of his lungs. <laughs> Can you just imagine, like, someone, you know, like, uh, yeah, you go to the liquor store, and then someone yells out about, uh, uh, what is it here, uh, just a second. Yeah, it's just like someone just yells out, you know, some old guy, you know, like, uh, the supply game of game for London is going steadily up. Headkeeper Hudson, we believe, has been now told to receive all orders for flypaper and for preservation of your head pheasant's life. Just throw some coins, you know what I mean? Holy mackerel. Yeah, get over it already. Oh, by the way, did, did I hear correctly that um, you can, in Ontario now, they can buy beer at uh, grocery stores? Yep, I, yeah. I get them at Loblaws now. They have, like, all the international beers now there, too. Cool, anyway, go by ahead. international, I mean, uh, quote-unquote imported bottled in Canada. Yeah, exactly. The Heineken from down the road. Yes, exactly. <laughs> to be honest, craft beers are the thing here nowadays, and uh, they're, they're they're almost better than that, that stuff anyway. So. Yeah, they're the thing over here, too. When you come to visit, we'll have a good night. Good stuff. Same same for you. Mm -hmm. Anyway, continue. Yes. Uh, so, to wit, the missive makes no sense whatsoever, and it's from the look on Watson's face that Holmes is reminded of his own perplexion, as this was his first case ever. 
like the destruction of Krypton, the fateful night of the theater for the Wayne family, when that radioactive spider fell on Peter Parker's hand, or when Samantha Mulder got sucked into the light, this was the making of a hero. What colorful cast bore witness to the genesis of this great detective? Well, there's Victor Trevor, for starters, the first official friend of Sherlock Holmes. This proto-Watson first met our hero in London during the schooling with his home camp during the schooling days. Holmes was, surprise, surprise, antisocial and never hobnob with his schoolmates, preferring to read and probably carry out dangerous experiments with his home chemistry set. Well, one day on the way to Mass, Trevor's Pitbull, thus casting the breed into the paranoia of popular culture, <laughs> damn you, ACD, takes out Sherlock's ankles, forcing him to undergo a wee convalescence. Uh, yeah, a very, uh, it was not a wee convalescence, quite a long one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it kind of was, a couple of months, actually. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Feeling guilty for his pup's actions and fending off a lawsuit or two, Victor checks in on Holmes from time to time and they soon become fast friends, or whatever Sherlock Holmes would perceive as a friend. The will to do Trevor is a bit of an invalid himself, it turns out, but not too shy to invite Holmes up to the north, where his father, a known justice of the peace, has an estate at Donathorpe. So young Holmes and Trevor hang out with Trevor Sr., doing the usual guy things, mud baths, manicures, cleanse days, <laughs> you know, guy things. Trevor lets out that Holmes has a crazy-ass ability to pull out of a thin air the most extensive and detailed observations about a person's character. Is he Batman? Who knows? Eager to test the theory or put his, this weird dude in his place, Trevor Sr. asks Holmes to Vulcan mind-meld on him. Well, Holmes doesn't spare a single detail, and J.P. Trevor is suddenly feeling a bit verklempt. Enter Hudson, a craggy old sailor who looks like he walked out of a Pirates of the Caribbean film, and starts throwing some nauseous shit at old man Trevor. But Trevor doesn't, doesn't bat an eye to Hudson's entitled assholery, and thinks things get really weird for Holmes, and that he head, soon heads back to London to play with his test tubes. Until he gets a telegram from young Trevor urging him to head back north. When Holmes alights from the train, he learns from Trevor that his father is at death's door. That Hudson was made for a gardener and a butler and did a shit job with both positions, harassed the maids, and treated old man Trevor's estate like a public house. This brought Victor to the breaking point to vet at Hudson, but his dad asked him to give an apology to the malefactor. No dice, says Victor. Rightly so. So Hudson sulks off to bug, to, uh, to bug uh, Beddoes, Trevor Sr.'s friend in Norfolk. This Trevor tells Holmes before they reach the estate to learn that old man has passed. He's left some papers, though, and a weird case of blackmail transforms into a Horatio Hornblower-esque yarn where old man Trevor, killed by a stroke after receiving the strange missive in the first paragraph I talked about, reveals himself as James Armitage, a decent chap who got into debt and embezzled from his work as a way of taking out a loan. But before, in the, but before he can rebalance the ledgers back to their original factory settings... He gets nabbed for the steel and gets sentenced to transportation to Australia. Along the way, there's a mutiny. But Australia doesn't sound that bad, right? Of course, if you were if you weren't living in Australia 150 years ago, you'd probably say that. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, so the titular transport vessel, our Gloria Scott, sets sail from Felmouth to Oz. But along the way, mutiny occurs commandeered by a psycho named Prendergast and his partner in disguise, who's a, as a chaplain of all things. Naturally, the mutiny breaks out along, along, uh, and the chaplain naturally blows out the captain's range. Armitage Trevor with his friend Evans, probably Beddoes, and Jack Prendergast, what is with psychos in the name Jack? I don't know. <laughs> Take the ship. Let us say that this is not a bloodless endeavor. Uh, the wanton mayhem by Prendergast and his boys are too much for Armitage and his friends, and they take the smaller boat, only to watch the Gloria Scott blow up with the remaining crew, Prendergast included. 
Luckily, slash conveniently, the vessel Hotspur shows up and takes the remainder of the crew. Armitage and Evans all the way back to Australia, and they believe their BS story, apparently, of being survivors of a downed passenger liner. Once in Oz, Armitage and survivors and the survivors work the gold mines, make a nice fortune to carry back to England. Alas, one survivor of the Gloria Scott explosion, a deckhand named Hudson, he knows exactly who they were, but chose to say nothing. Even if they, even though he's, even though they rescued him, yeah. he chose to say nothing. And that that, until... that really got in my craw that part, the fact that he was rescued by them, and you figure that they would have at at some point have said, "Look, we're going to rescue you, so." You play our game, please, for the rest of your fucking life. You play our game. Exactly. Anyway, whatever, you know? whatever. Getting ahead and, of myself. And he chose to say nothing until until they chose not to recognize his scuzzy brilliance years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So young Trevor learns his dad, the justice of the peace, was a crook, but an honest one in his own way. Mm-hmm. Hudson disappears, as does Beddoes slash Evans. No surprise there. Wonder what happened in that regard. Mm-hmm. And no scandal falls onto the Trevor household. Holmes gets his first case and devotes the rest of his life fighting crime. Da-da-da. Well done. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Uh, I feel like you've uh, covered the basis there better than, um, I, I don't know, to memory, better than, better than you have in a long time. Is it fair to say that that was probably one of the more enjoyable plot summaries you've written? I, it, I was, it was fun writing it, so there was some passion yeah. in there, I guess. Yeah, because it comes through. It's cool. All right, listen, uh, before we get into the pipes here with this one, do you want to know a little something-something about prisoner sentencing at the time? Because I got some info that might help make some of this even cooler. I'm aware that transportation was a, was a common sentence given to criminals. Uh, instead, they, instead of choosing death, they would be sent to the colonies. I'm, I'm aware of that. But if you have some details you want to share, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm down. Well, I, I like yourself, know bits. But I went and found some more because I thought that, you know, it, it, it warranted a bit of investigation. So context on prisoner sentencing to Australia and the United States back to 1700s, okay, is when they were doing this. Um, because of overcrowding in British jails... Even common misdemeanors, things like stealing rabbits, okay, could gain you seven years banishment to the United States in lieu of branding or flogging. Or more serious crimes, like a death sentence, would earn you 14 years of banishment. Which, and, and let's face it, right? Banishment means when you get there, you're slave work is what you're doing. But you could but choose. But you're that. also indentured, so that means that you can, if once you work off your indenture, mm-hmm. like you're, mm-hmm. in, you're indentured. Uh, service, then you're actually you're, you're a free man afterwards, and you can make your life in the colonies. And a lot of people did that. Of course, yeah. Like I, I would certainly do that. Um, anyway, so so we're thinking America first, okay? Just think about the United States because this is what's going on. After the American Revolution, Britain couldn't keep sending prisoners to the states, so Australia then became the number one drop zone. Transportation to Australia began in 1787. This, as you have so nicely put, is where the Gloria Scott was heading. Uh, Between 1788 and, and 1868, so 80 years, between those 80, or within those 80 years, 806 ships, 164,000 convicts went to Australia from 
Britain and started an outpost life as transported prisoners. And they became, as you well know, leading settlers in the area. And when they talk about uh, Australia being a nation of convict heritage, this is what they're talking about. And I think it's a little unfair because it has its own immigration patterns too that a story like this widely overlook. But nevertheless, I thought that was interesting con context, particularly because America also has an awful lot of... <clears throat> it has its own 70 years or so of sending... Uh, or of being a drop zone for prisoner sentencing. It's just that Australia is the one we know about most now because America's claimed its own... Uh, claimed its own heritage or its own uh, freedom back in that way. Ah. And think, think of nowadays, though, like if they Australia was a destination to play over because they couldn't send people to America anymore. I think of me nowadays, and who wants to be sent to America now? <laughs> yeah, I know, really. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably just choose the flogging. Yeah, or Australia. Mm. Or Australia, yeah. Oh, listen. Australia's I, okay right now. I they, got, have a, they have a female like prime minister. Yeah, it's, it's basically like the Liberal Party of Canada. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, essentially. Yeah, with, without Mr. Selfie. <laughs> I'm sure he's done a selfie with her, though. I'm sure he has. Anyway, I got some bad news for you. Oh, dear. Are you sitting down? I'm sitting down. It's not a pit bull. It's a bull terrier. Oh, oh dear. Well, again, we have Arthur Conan Doyle's fear of dogs. Maybe, maybe this was the Baskerville's dog as a pup. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. A bull terrier, though, is the breed that Don Cherry used to have you remember his dog yeah that's right yeah it wasn't it wasn't a pit bull okay well then good well bull terriers are are, are fine then but uh I'm, so, I'm sorry to i'm sorry to uh cast more aspersions on pit bulls than i intended to i apologize <laughs> for all those pit bull owners in montreal you know who had to deal with uh, that whole um fiasco there i apologize what fiasco Oh, you never heard about that? I don't think so. Um, the mayor of Montreal wanted to ban pit bulls from the city completely, and so that they would, that it, once you there was if you don't keep your pit bull muzzled, then they would start like euthanizing the pit bulls and everything. Oh, really? Yeah, that didn't happen though. Well, well it almost happened, but uh, yeah, good. it was pretty intense time though when it when it did, because people don't realize that it's breeding and also uh, environment that creates uh, attack dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, environment particularly. Because as Caesar Milan has shown time and time again, pit bulls can be lovely house pets if they're in the right home of calm, assertive discipline. That's right. Anyway, sorry about uh, having to ruin the party there, but uh, it's a bull terrier. Well, you know. Anyway, pit interestingly bulls, enough... Tomato, tomato, whatever. The, the bull terrier, I found out, is one of the key figures that scholars use in determining which college or university Holmes attended. Basically, what these people who have no better things to do, do, is they look at, okay, well, Oxford didn't let or did let dogs into certain houses, and Cambridge didn't, because most people believe that Holmes went to one of the, uh, well, you know, one of these two uh, institutions, but such and such didn't allow dogs in dormitories. Others did, therefore it must have been this one if this is a friend that he had met at university. And so that's how they kind of do all this shit, right? In, in London, in, in London, mind you, as well, because they mentioned London. So what university is outside of London? Well, Cambridge yeah. and Oxford are both. But they're but but they're but they're 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 a slight distance away, though, are are, are they not? Yeah, but and if both those institutions don't uh, allow dogs, then we're 
possibly where could the dogs have uh, been allowed, so indicating what school he went to. Well, this is the information that people debate over. I wonder if Arthur Conan Doyle knew this going, I'm not going to tell him where he, maybe he didn't want to associate, he felt that maybe there could be some libel associating this character with the university. Who knows the reason why he didn't reveal uh, the exact location of Holmes's schooling. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he wanted just to, I don't know, maybe he didn't want that longevity of relationship. Maybe he wanted his readers to concentrate on the method instead of origin. Who knows? Much like Holmes himself. <laughs> Much like Holmes himself, yeah. These little things that wouldn't necessarily, or they shouldn't be in the mind of a human. Yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so let's do it. Principles, what do you think of them? I gave the principles in this story 3.5. Okay. We get the young Holmes here. You know, he's less social than we know him. And he's almost perceived to be kind of annoying vis-a-vis -vis his deduction on Justice of the Peace Trevor slash Armitage. Mm. Uh, we also have, like, the genuinely nice moment between the between Watson um, and, and Holmes, you know, as the two and between the two of them, as he indulges his nostalgia in a, in a very affectionate way with his friend, you know? He he knows that he's been writing all these stories about him, and they always have arguments over the quality of these stories. But here he decides, you know what? Here's my first case. Isn't, isn't this nice? You know, and, you know, this revelation aside, there's not much else, be, you know, and I think that that was a, a big moment for the two characters. And Holmes, I like just like the idea of Holmes being like this, this you know, this late teens kind of like, overly observant annoying teenager you know like just point out all, all these things to uh to mr trevor there and uh <laughs> it just seems like he he hasn't been able to hold back then he couldn't hold back you know like he wasn't disciplined in, in, in his own way it was just kind of like a uh what's the word like a blossoming talent that he was beginning to acquire mm-hmm and I do, yeah. re I do really like the way the story begins. I think it's funny. Like Holmes is like, "Oh, look at this, Watson. Here's something. That yeah. Here's something that cost a man to drop dead." And he just reads it casually, and he's like, "What flypaper? What the hell?" And yeah. then I, I, I like that. I thought that was cool. Um, yeah, it's a that, neat little way in. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's it's a good way to jump right right into the story. But I think as a whole, I give it three point five because I find our dynamic duo they get absorbed by the maelstrom. You know, that is the Gloria Scott mutiny. And that kind of, to me, takes over the story and, yeah, he, and, he, and the principles in general. He does some neat profiling. Although it takes some time, he also cracks that cipher, which is cool. Um, it is kind of cool. And I thought but that this predictably, was but, but, but yeah. predictable that he did crack it, though. Predictably, but that, that, that has more to do with the investigation than the characters. Yeah. I, I was right with you. I went 3.5 as well for the... Uh, the guys here in the glorious God, I thought they, I thought they worked well. Um, have you got a moment that you want to read out? I'm just conscious of us not really delving into the text much, and that's cool. But there might be passages here that that you know we could share. Well, looking at, you know at the beginning of the story, um, you know I I read, I read out the drunken the uh, the uh, flypaper missive and everything. Well, I mean, I've got, um, I've I've got a bit if you want. But I do I do like this part here about how he he first meets Victor Victor Tr Tr Trevor uh, before we got into the discrepancy my, my uh, mistake about the uh, the pit bull there. Mm -hmm. You never heard of me talk of Victor Trevor? He asked. He was the only friend I made during the two years I was at college. 
I was never a very sociable fellow, Watson, always rather fond of moping in my rooms and working out my own little methods of thought, so that I, mi- I never mixed much with the men of my year. Bar fencing and boxing, I had few athletic tastes, and then my line of study was quite distinct from that of the other fellows, so that we had no points of contact at all. Trevor was the only man I knew, and, and that only through the accident of his bull terrier freezing on my ankle one morning as I went down to chapel. It was a prosaic way of forming a friendship, but it was effective. I was laid by the heels for ten days, and Trevor used to come in to inquire after me. At first it was only a minute's chat, but soon his visits lengthened, and before the end of the term we were close friends. He was a hearty, full-blooded fellow, full of spirits and energy. The very opposite to me in most respects. Very much like Watson, right? But we had some subjects in common, and it was a bond of union when I found that he was as friendless as I. Finally, he invited me down to his father's place at Donathorpe in Norfolk, and I accepted his hospitality for a month on the long vacation. Oh, correction. Uh, Beto slash Evans lives in Hampshire. Donathorpe is outside of Norfolk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I correct that. Uh, I just realized I got mixed. got the two places mixed up there. Duly noted. Yes. But as you can see, like, just in this here, uh, you think about how Watson and Sherlock first met, the whole thing about his friend needing a room to let, right? And all this sort of thing. And uh, it's it, it, and uh, he knew that Sherlock Holmes was looking for a room and Watson was looking for a, a roommate and... It's just, it's just, it's like those. Holmes does not search out people; he runs into people, and then he forms friendship through those coincidences, right? He just mm-hmm. allows them to happen, and he welcomes it if it does. But he doesn't go out actively looking for it. And the, the how he meets in, in in his own kind of serendipitous way, how he meets Trevor is very similar to how he meets Watson. Not that the the, the events were similar, but it's just the it's just kind of like he bumped into him along the way. And more and more, I think you'll find Holmes just bumping into people and, and making acquaintances, such as Pycroft, for example, in just small little ways that are kind of connected to society. And really, even though this was his first case and he was much uh, much more antisocial back then than he is now, to me, this is kind of the beginning of that. It's just a very prolonged social blossoming, I suppose. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Um, I couldn't actually put it any better than that. It- yeah, I agree with you. I think that is exactly what, what we've got here. And it it helps strengthen and I guess add a bit more muscle to that first meeting in A Study of Scarlet where we see the guys come together because it, it just kind of textures it out a bit. Yeah, it, it, it fills in the blanks about some perhaps a bit too familiar too quickly, you know, from the study in Scarlet onwards. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read just a really short bit here from when he's sizing up Trevor Sr., if you'll indulge me for a moment. Because I, oh, th- yes, I think that this profiling, I think this profiling is pretty spot on, and it is like what we get later. Uh, of course, Conan Doyle is writing it, having done this a few times already as a writer, but we're meant to see that this is his first ever reading and sizing of a character, right? Yes. Obviously, he had done it because he does say that he's done it at high school or sorry, at college before. He says that in the next story, but this is the first time we see it printed, at least revealed chronologically. <clears throat> uh, you have boxed a good deal in your youth. Right again. How did you know it? Is my nose knocked a little out of the straight? No, it's your ears. They have the peculiar flattening and thickening which marks the boxing man. Anything else? You've done a great deal of digging by your callosities. Callosities. Made all my money in the gold fields. You have been in New Zealand. Right again. 
you visited Japan. Quite true. And you've been Im- Im- intimately associated with someone whose initials were J.A. and whom you afterward were eager to entirely forget. Mr. Trevor stood slowly up, fixed his large blue eyes on me with a strange, wild stare, and then pitched forward on his face among the nutshells which strewed the cloth in a dead faint. You can imagine, Watson, how shocked both his son and I were. His attack didn't last long, however, for when we undid his collar and sprinkled the water from one of the finger glasses over his face, he gave a gasp or two and sat up. <laughs> Strong yeah, as I look. Uh... Anyway, yeah, that, that's it. I just like it. I thought I thought this was good. I thought Holmes was really good in this story. Watson is just a listener, and yeah, you're yes. right. It is just Holmes telling a story, but I like I like it because even the little bits where the narrative breaks and we get back to Holmes talking to Watson, there's a certain color to those little um, conversational points, you know, about now listen to this Watson or uh, pay mind to this, you know. I, I like that. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was enough, I think, to flesh the characters out in their minimal way in the story. And that's mm-hmm. why I give it 3.5. You know, I think it was a little better than what it could have been, you know, especially right. compared to the last story. Yeah, and I was there with you as well. So how about Investigation, the uh, the story of the, of the Gloria Scott and or the way that Conan Doyle stylized and put it together? I gave I gave the investigation a solid four. Me too. Uh, Me the, too. The flashback within a flashback within a flashback, as I mentioned earlier, those three different authorial voices. I found it a really refreshing experiment, and Trevor slash Armitage's telling of the mutiny is really exciting. Uh, the particular Holmes adventure, you know, it's built around this mu- this is built around a mutiny, unlike the other ones. And because of this reliance on the background story to solve the mystery of Holmes's recounting to Watson and to enforce the reader from you know. To, to the reader from Watson that this is the first Sherlock Holmes case, I think it removes any need for the typical structure of a Holmes investigation because that wasn't really what he was trying to do here. So none of the clues provided could ever lead the reader to guesstimate, you know, the Gloria Scott incident. It would right. how that would lead up to that, right? Like yeah. again, like the study in Scarlet, everything was dependent upon this flashback. Mm-hmm. And even so, the narrative is intriguing and it's gripping. And regardless of falling short of being a classic Holmes case file, uh, it, uh, it 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 did the job for me immensely, so that's why I give it a solid four. Yeah, I gave it a four as well. Um, I like I like the I liked having the format changed a little bit. You know, like instead of chasing Holmes, I was getting a flashback wherein I got to chase Holmes a little bit, but not really. Uh, it was more of a return to a study in Scarlet, as you say. And although the letter Trevor Senior gives to his son is a little bit lengthy, an info drop. As you say, the story of High Sea Adventure is great. Mutiny. It is very engaging. It does feel like a Treasure Island type story. And although I wouldn't be happy if my... I, I wouldn't necessarily be happy if it was someone in my family that, you know, bestowed upon me the news of their other life. It's really exciting to read it, knowing that I don't have to be emotionally invested in how young Trevor <laughs> reacts. I can just kind of go along with it because it is interesting to to see this, um, and it, it's a wild story. I, I love the the bigger environment, the macro environment of being a prisoner, being sent away. Yeah, it's you know the investigation has points in it. Uh, in this letter, rather, the narrative has points that are similar to the Boscombe Valley mystery, where you've got those characters also criminals in Australia who get Australia, together. Australia, yeah. You know, I mean, there is the same thing going on there and the reference to the gold and all of that shit. But 
you, you know, much like we've had before, sorry, much like we had just before in the other story, there are hints of a superior tale behind it because I thought the Boscombe Valley mystery was was really quite a, a sharp piece of work as well. I gave it a, um, a, P, a higher mark of 17. You gave it 18.5. Um, but this this story works in its own way and who cares if it uses certain ideas before. It also says something historically about what people are interested in. People are interested about overseas life and, and how people within Britain or without are involved in colonies and involved in, you know, bringing the world together through exploration and these other stories. And, you know, the world's becoming bigger on, a, on, a, on an exponential rate, at an exponential yes. rate. And I think that this searching, this, you know, the, the long reach of his, of his narratives speak to that. So, yeah, he goes back to Australia, but it makes sense. Like I said, 164,000 Britons were... Um, sent out of the country to Australia in 80 years. 806 ships traveled from Britain to Australia. So there is this link that's undeniable. And who cares if he goes back there? It, it makes for a good story. And he's got to put his boat somewhere, right? It can't be a helicopter and it can't be an airline. Um, yes. Uh, sorry, it can't be like an Airbus or, or a Boeing 737. It has to take place at sea. So he does a good job with it. I like the investigation and I'm right with you. I, I was a four as well. Good, good. And so going on to the principles then, uh, sorry, not the principles, sorry, the perpetrators um, of our pipes here. Uh, Hudson, this guy is pure scum. Oh, he and is. He's a scumbag, the... isn't he? He's like the guy who, uh, earlier you were, you, you know, gesturing about uh, the guy. Asshole victim? Asshole, yeah, exactly. Asshole victim. And I'm just thinking, God, this guy's a dick. Yeah, even though like the backstory, right, it paints him as a victim of circumstance, you know, you just don't like the guy automatically. I mean, that has to do with the writing, of course, when he's introduced and whatnot, and you don't really know his backstory. Like, you don't know if this guy is just like extorting uh, the, uh, you know, Justice Trevor in some other way. Uh, But when you learn the backstory, even even then, you don't feel bad for him, you know? That's right. Uh, You actually hate him, actually, after after you read the backstory and, and what they did for him and everything, and... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm surprised they didn't kind of like sh- like let him you know take part in their in in their in their in their gold and stuff like they just kind of like when they got to Sydney they just like dropped them off and went their own way is that what that is that what happened and he probably just got drunk or something in- instead of like trying to make a fortune and a new life for himself well there were That's, I guess what happened there were a lot of others in Maybe the he, lifeboat he, remember he, yeah and remember too that he might have resented them for killing some of his crew as well like even though like they never really killed anyone themselves like. Uh, maybe, maybe that guard or two in defense, they weren't like Prendergast, right? So this guy could probably probably only remembers what Prendergast did more so than anything on the deck of that ship, right? So mm-hmm. Yeah, the eight eight of us, five convicts and three sailors, said that we would not see it done. They So there were eight people in that lifeboat. Presumably, uh, two of them got together, and two of them, and the rest of the six went their own way, or who knows? But yeah. But instead of exacting, you know, justice for his dead roommates, uh, oh, you know, sorry, chose... sorry. Before you go on, before you go on with that, crewmates. Um, yes, like how it kind of makes you wonder: is that all that this guy Hudson did? Did he go down and hunt everybody that got in that lifeboat? And are these guys at the end of or the beginning of that mission that Hudson had to get or to, to blackmail everybody? Because yeah, these were these the only are survivors that he could find, right? Yeah. They're the only survivors that he could find. Maybe uh, that's what I'm thinking. Interesting. Yeah, I'm curious to see what happened to those other people, you know, and 
But, you know, instead of exacting justice for his, you know, his dead crewmates, he chooses to extort the mutineers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even the, and the decent members of that lot, to be precise. That's right. Uh, from his first appearance, he generates no sympathy, only the need for comeuppance. <laughs> <laughs> to the rogues gallery, I add now Jack Prendergast. Uh, his way of speaking, confidence and pathological determination and cold bloodedness it stimulates goose flesh in me as a reader. Like he was just something really, else. Yeah. So he, he really, really stood out for you. Yeah. He, he was just like, uh, I'm just going to just go to it now. Um, so this is when they, this is when they're in transportation to Australia on the glorious Scott. They're partitioned by a really thin wall and they're, and him and, uh, uh, Armitage are, are Mr. Trevor there. And, uh, Jack Prendergast meet for the first time. Hello, chummy, said he. What's your name, and what are you here for? I answered him and asked in turn who I was talking with. <clears throat> I'm Jack Prendergast, said he, and by God you'll learn to bless my name before you've done with me. I remember hearing of his case, for it was one which had made an immense sensation throughout the country some time before my own arrest. He was a man of good family and of great ability, but of incurably vicious habits, who had by an ingenious system of fraud obtained huge sums of money from the leading London merchants. Ha ha, you remember my case, said he proudly. Very well indeed. Then maybe you remember something queer about it. What was that then? I had nearly a quarter million, hadn't I? So it was said. But none was recovered, eh? No. Well, where do you suppose the balance is, he asked. I have no idea, said I. Right between my finger and thumb, he cried. <laughs> By God, I've got more pounds to my name than you have hairs on your head. And if you my, and you've money, my son, you know how to handle it and spread it. You can do anything. Now you don't think it likely that a man could do anything is going to wear his breeches out sitting in the stinking hold of a rat-gutted, beetle-written, boldly old coffin of a chin-china coaster? No, sir. Such a man will look after himself and will look after his chums. You may lay to that. You hold on to him and you may kiss the book that he'll haul you through. That was his style of talk, and at first I thought it meant nothing, but after a while, when he had tested me and swore me in with all possible solemnity, he let me understand that there really was a plot to gain command of the vessel. A dozen of the prisoners had hatched it before they came aboard. Printer Gas was the leader, and his money was the motive power. And then, of course, you know, on top of that, you have the chaplain. It was just, it was just a really great detail was, like, this guy on the chaplain aboard the ship was Prendergast's associate that he that he managed to buy, and this is the idea of them during the mutiny and they hearing the explosion in the, in the captain's cabin and walking out, and the chaplain's just like blowing the brains out of the captain, you know, like this is just crazy effed up shit going on here, you know? Yeah, there is actually. Um, there's something about that now that you've said it that's uh, made me want to. Yeah, here it is. That's made me want to read that bit out. Because there's a difference between the American edition and the British edition of that particular scene. And I think that says something about censorship, not official, but perhaps social or cultural censorship. Um, There were two more soldiers at the door of the stateroom, and their muskets seemed not to be loaded, for they never fired upon us, and they were shot while trying to fix their bayonets. Then we rushed on into the captain's cabin, but as we pushed open the door, there was an explosion from within, and there he lay with his head on the chart of the Atlantic, which was pinned upon the table, while the chaplain stood with a smoking pistol in his hand at his elbow. So now that refers to, you know, your appraisal of the chaplain, but here's what the American edition reads, okay? Quote, there he lay with his brains smeared over the chart of the Atlantic. Now, when this story was published, that difference was included between the British and the American edition. And although this is one example and certainly not a litmus test, I do think it's really interesting if you consider 
the the relationship that America has with violence and sex compared to the relationship that Britain has with violence and sex. Over here, we are very, very liberal. I say we, I'm a fucking Canadian, but over here on television, you're much more likely to see a bum or bare breasts on television even before the watershed, you know, or like just after the watershed, 9, 10 o'clock in the evening, than you are to see yeah. grisly, grisly violence. That type of shit is like satellite TV stuff, right? Uh, I'm speaking, yeah. you know, I'm speaking exaggeratedly, but that that's the point. Like, we're more comfortable. HBO kind of stuff. That's yeah. right. We're more comfortable with sex and stuff over here, sex and tits and ass and dicks and stuff, than we are with guns violence. and violence. Yeah. But America, America, America is, is almost the inverse of that, you know, where yes. we try to shun all of this kind of sex stuff, um, which is ironic given the pornography industry and whatnot. But, you know, you shun that stuff, but you can show and celebrate guns and violence. And so I thought it's interesting that 120 years ago, here we've got a story involving a chaplain who is killing. And in America, the expression brains smeared over the chart takes the place of the original, which Conan Doyle wrote, which is head on the chart. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. I have the American uh, Penguin one, and they have the smearing on the chart there. Cool. So I've got the other one. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, sorry. Yeah. There's just that notable difference. Uh, it's cool. So what did you go for then with the perpetrators? I went for a four. I did, I, did a, I did a four as well. This is okay. This is good. We're lining up right with this yeah. story. We haven't had any uh, disagreements at all yet. Yeah, my final note on like uh, Prendergast, you know, like uh, that whole thing with the powder keg at the end, right? But the first mate after they killed the surgeon, you know, that they uh, that they held hostage is just absolutely awful, you know? They have like the, the more bloodier mutineers, they have this fitting end when the first mate ignites the powder keg. It's great narrative justice. Um, and Prendergast himself is, I, you know, as you saw from the, what I read, he is charismatic and mesmerizing at the same time. And even though he's, he has a small, a small, small part in the story in, in, in a way, he stands out pretty strongly to me as the big perpetrator of this mm -hmm. outside of Hudson, of course. Uh, and this makes the character, he just seamlessly blend into the story world, you know, it's, uh, it is this character as well as his villainous partners in crime that give the glorious Scott a distinct edge of verisimilitude, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right. Uh, Prendergast is the bigger the bigger perpetrator, even though Hudson is the one that we, we meet in the flesh. Well, we don't meet either of them in the flesh, but he, he he's the product perpetrator. You know, he was yeah. created by his environment, whereas the real perpetrator is, um, is Prendergast. But... I, I don't it's know. Like, though, is, is that the charismatic Prendergast, who's a psychopath, and we should hate him more than Hudson? We still like Prendergast more than we like Hudson. It's kind of weird in its own yeah, awful, strange way. It is. It's because he's got charm, and he, you know, we think that there's a motive there that might be worth uh, worth a little bit more on the measuring scale than just being a dick. Everyone likes Hannibal Lecter over the douchebag, right? I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, look, I got a question, though. I got I to gotta pick you up on something here. Like, th this whole idea of the stray bullet, right? Um, or the match and the gun and the gunpowder and all that kind of stuff. Like, when the hell... Because we're told in the story, uh, Hudson thought it was caused by the misdirected bullet that blew up the ship. Uh, one of the convicts rather than the mate's match. How the hell did Hudson formulate a hypothesis when he was, like, flying through the air into the ocean? Is that, like... <laughs> like how, how does that happen? Like... 
He, he must have been in there when they pulled the... When he, he probably heard a gunshot, and that's probably what he thought might have happened. That's all I can think of. And then everything went black, right, kind of thing? Or uh, I don't know. I guess so. Anyway, I mean, if, if the first mate scuttled the ship, then to, to, to prevent the mutiny or to prevent the theft, like... I don't know. I just don't know how the hell he could discern what was going on when he was flying through the air into the ocean. In his own mind, he discerned it. He seems like one of those people that would just be like, uh, nope, that's exactly what happened and nothing can change my mind that that's exactly what happened, you know? It's yeah. uh, just set in his ways, his scuzzy, scuzzy ways. Well, what did what did you think of the environment here in the story? I love the env- environment. I gave that the highest mark, actually. I gave environments 4.5. Wow, okay. Yeah, I found like the champion of this, you know, this story is the varied lo- the varied locales presented. There's Baker Street is warm and cozy on a winter's eve over the roar of the fire. We have Holmes and Watson discussing the case, taking us to to the to the London boarding houses of the past, to the broads and the scenery of the north, uh, the emotion and tenseness of Donathorpe with Holmes um, you know, apt deducing of J.P. Trevor and the arrival of Hudson. Then you have the note at Baker Street is great bait to pull one into the story. Uh, it leaves the rest of to Armitage's uh, extraordinary crucible at sea, uh, the cramped quarters below, the captain's stateroom before it gets perforated from above, the visual of the captain taken out by the chaplain with the smoking gun, Prendergast's bloodlust on deck, the explosion of the glorious Scott. You know, like just all of these things combined in, in these locales has really told a great story, in my opinion. And the story, I think, would be detrimental without those uh, environs. So that's why I think it was the strongest character in this tale was the environs. Okay, uh, this is where we disagree then because you gave it 4.5, I gave it 3.5. I still think it works. I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I don't get as much of, I don't get much description of the Gloria Scott as you do. Uh, I've seen a lot of films of these types of ships. Uh, oh, by the way, that that brings me to something else that I had scribbled down. Um about the Gloria Scott itself. I thought you might find this interesting if I can find it. Where is it? Maybe it's over here. Yeah, here we go. No, I guess I don't have it. thought I did. Sorry, I made a note somewhere about the Gloria Scott being... of like what they used to do to these these boats because it wasn't normally a ship that would have taken uh, prisoners and transported them. This was kind of like a modified ship with a square mm. sail and everything. Anyway, that doesn't matter. It's by the by. But I didn't get, <laughs> I didn't get as much of the, the interiors as you seem to have. Like, I mean, you cited a number of different events that took place in places, certainly, but I didn't see the places standing out as much as the actions of the characters. Um, I don't disagree that it's an awesome place to, to have a great story. The Gloria Scott does come through as an image, but mm. um, I, I like the descriptions of the smoke on the horizon, you know, and that's all they could see. They, on the ocean in their lifeboat more than I did the, the boat itself. Like I didn't think it was bad, you know, 3.5. We're still talking 70% here, but I couldn't go up as high as you did for that. But uh, what about secondary characters? I was 3.5. I found that Trevor was the Victor Trevor. Sorry. He was an embryonic Watson, almost matching him in description. As I mentioned, he's more or less a cipher in the tale though, a device to provoke the elder Trevor mm-hmm. slash Armitage to regale us of his misadventures. Armitage is intriguing. Uh, his, his using his judiciary powers and showing leniency uh, in, in his old age seemed to come naturally, uh, but also as a way to justify his past life, in my opinion. It's mm-hmm. a way to atone in, in a way. 
uh, and remember, this is the guy who was who didn't want to steal, but he had to for reasons, and was and was doing was going to cover up and put the money back, you know, in, in yeah. a good way. Yeah. And he was just a nice guy who just got in a bad situation and tried to get himself out of it. And uh, you know, and that's why I think he was more understanding with a lot of people nowadays back then, because mm-hmm. even mentions like thirty years ago, back then people were sent to transportation, and for something like he did nowadays, in the time the story was set, he wouldn't have done as bad. I. I I, I, I suppose. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I've got a very similar note to that, which you started off with. Um, I, I thought that they were good. You know, I thought that the, the secondary players here were good, particularly Trevor Sr. But depending on how you look at it, Trevor Jr. Uh, as well. Like, I like the idea of him being a guy who kind of knows Holmes and they get to know each other better because of what happens. You know, like, I, I think that's yeah. cool. And he is, as you say, a, a vehicle necessary to drive on the story. But that doesn't take away from his interesting story. And yeah, I mean, he was cool. Without without his story and the letter he left to his son, and none of this would have happened. I, I exactly. Don't, and I do find that engaging. And we've met a lot of landowners now, you know, guys who have made their money elsewhere and else how, and have then, you know, raised up these estates. And they have purchasing power, I guess is the best way you could describe them. These men with purchasing power. We've met a number of them in the series so far. But... Uh, it's nice to have a landowner that's not like a crazy psycho too, like uh, yeah. Roy Lott or right. uh, or what's his name uh, Tuxin. What's his name? The the uh, the villain in uh, the Copper Beaches. Oh, Rue Castle. Uh, Rue Castle. Yeah. Rue Castle. Yeah. yeah. Rue Castle. You know, uh, I found this like Prendergast, Hudson, the Chaplain. They stand out stronger in 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 in, in, in his narrative. So like his son, you know. Uh, he, uh, Armitage is like he's more is a more of a MacGuffin, despite having a slightly pres a, a, a slightly stronger presence in narrative. That's a good and way. I yeah, wanted more of his character. You, you know, I wanted more of his character. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't did get too. that. And, and and that's okay. You know, that's okay. But at the same time, like this again with this story, there was a lot of potential in this one, mm-hmm. and it, 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 I think it did, did its best what it did, and it got a very very good good very good story out of it. Well, stru- but, structurally, you're right. There is a lot more that could have been done, and given its similarity structurally to, you know, with the big letter and the info drop, like the story within a story, there is novel scope to this. Short novel, but novel scope to this. There is novel scope, yeah. I can imagine kind of like not just Hudson extorting, but a whole, the whole former like crew, like mm-hmm. the surviving crew of the Gloria Scott plotting against the mutineers yeah, later in life. Totally. I think I think that I think that would have been kind of intriguing, actually. So do I, but because Holmes doesn't really do much in this story, we couldn't have had a longer inside story. The Gloria Scott tale couldn't have elongated much more for the sake of the narrative, whether it's a novel or a short story, because this is, at the end of the day, a Sherlock Holmes story, and we got to consider Holmes' involvement in it. And his involvement, as we already have said, is is minimal plus, uh, but his, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think pages more about the nuances and the minutiae of this betrayal and mutiny would have helped it be a home story. It would have been more like a treasure island, you know. And that's that's definitely true. It's it's a it's again it's the ability of, of these stories to jump on a different genres each time, yeah. right? And that's cool. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. I'm he's drawing from his influences and his interests. And as we've said several times before, stories like the Lost World, uh, characters like uh, Challenger or yeah, Challenge Charger. What's his name? 
Challenger. Yeah, Professor Challenger. Challenger. Professor Challenger. These are the stories that he really loved to tell more than Sherlock Holmes, I, I guess, autobiographically or biographically. You touched on that already. So, you know, we've we've got him playing with the adventures that he really wants to tell, and he's using Holmes' framework to do that. Um, <laughs> okay, great, man. Look, that brings you to a 19.5 for The Adventure of the Glorious Scott, and it brings me to an 18.5. So we saw fairly eye-to-eye on that one as well. A good story, a nice beginning point. And uh, I've got here for our musical indulgence a great piece of music also to do with a mutiny. And thematically, it fits quite well. This from one of the greatest action films of the 1990s and probably one of the greatest fi- mm-hmm. one of the greatest uh, film scores from that late 20th century period I'm talking of course about Crimson Tide and this a track that I've cut called Mutiny from our friend Hans Zimmer's soundtrack the good old days of Hans Zimmer Picture the glorious Scott, Prendergast working below decks, and all the carnage that ensues. I'm not sure that the mutiny in this story is deserving of the patriotic, patriotic music, <laughs> but it's it's mutiny and it's it's fun because you don't often hear me talk fondly of Hans Zimmer. Well, this was his heyday, right? This was when he produced his best work. Sure was. But given Hans Zimmer and the topic, I will say that I do like uh, Hans Zimmer's Sherlock Holmes scores that he did for those films. Uh, they speak of, of an earlier Hans Zimmer that uh, I fear has been lost.
I work with a girl here who um, is, like myself, quite a fan of film music. We've never had a proper chat about how much she likes, but I I know she is because she and her partner uh, I met while attending a John Williams concert in Glasgow, just Mm. kind of serendipitously, and she told me that she was away to see... um, She was away to see... Hang on a second now. I'm going to save that one for later. Uh, she, she was away to see Hans Zimmer in concert just a couple of weeks ago. He came through to Glasgow uh, oh, yeah. the Hydro, I think, with his little orchestra. And that was, was quite cool. I, I didn't go. Uh, Sarah would have gone with me, but I um, I just felt like, given what was going on, it was a little bit too too hectic. And I heard about that, too. Yeah, he's doing some touring stuff. And he has that... Uh, there's a really great uh, cellist uh, that, that, that tours with him now, too. And uh, she's getting quite popular. What's her name? I think Tina Guo or something or something like that. Okay, cool. Anyway, yeah, so there you go. A bit of Crimson Tide. I don't know if Crimson Tide made the... It didn't make the shortlist of our Project Worried uh, podcast series, but it was a score that made my long list, I remember, when we did our list of 40. Oh, really? Okay. But the Zimmer, the Zimmer selections we took were Gladiator and the Lion King, weren't they? Yeah, our Worried thing was basically a... Um, uh, it was our kind of like we had this whole the, the fun concept of that if humanity was being wiped out by an alien invasion or zombie apocalypse what have you uh, we would preserve the greatest film scores what was it like 25 or something that's right or? yeah 25 plus uh, we had a handful of five afterwards remember the, yeah <laughs> that five was, that was we good could fun. Throw, throw in there uh, you know throw, throw into the archive so to speak when we rocket away on our spaceship mm. uh, into the cosmos Anyway, uh, that was a different world, but, uh, you know, we've got it to thank for our conversation here today in a silly yeah, sort of way. Definitely, definitely. And as I mentioned, uh, um, for those of them who like film music and feel that Hans Zimmer has lost some of his stride, some of his, he does every now and then have a few moments of, 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 of light, like uh, his Interstellar score is very good. Mm-hmm. I also recommend the, the two scores that he did for the uh, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. It's, you know, yeah, you were saying... Right, right on topic here. Uh, they're very much like an old style film score, and not t- t- completely reduced to dubstep. <laughs> <laughs> I think melody has something to do with it. You know, like there's melody coming through that that track that we just played. There's not a lot of melody in these sort of ethereal, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, atonal type things. And, and I get, I get their sort of, I get their sort of their, their purpose diegetic or otherwise but i just don't i I don't know they're tough they're tough listening experiences but whatever we're not here as you say to uh, surgically dissect the career of any one film composer we are however here to uh pursue our third and final conversation for today on the adventure of or just the musgrave ritual if you will uh goodreads our pals our friends our colleagues have said things such as this Four stars, says Miriam. Good story, although I was hoping for the ritual itself to be something crazy. Unlike the, you know, the crown of Charles I. Yeah, what what does she expect? Uh, Daniel, four stars as well. Uh, The straightforwardness of this story won't allow me to rate it any higher. Short, but somewhat boring. Four stars, Daniel, really. You didn't really say a lot there that would uh, warrant a four-star rating, but hey, who am I? Jasmine, 3.5 stars. Not really mind-blowing, Jasmine says, but quite entertaining. It's my first Doyle, so I might have expected more than I should have. I might re-rate it when I've read some of more Shirley's adventures. 
Oh, great. So she's one of those Star <laughs> Sherlock Holmes fans. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, Kylie gives it two stars, two stars, rather, and says, seriously, the butler did it? End quote. <laughs> yeah. The butler didn't do it, though. That's the whole point of the story. Uh, well, the butler did something, and I'm about to tell you what that was. The Musgrave Ritual. Here's our plot summary. This story was published in The Strand in May of 1893, and again in Harper's Weekly of the same month. Uh, Here's a plot summary for you. In this story, an early example of a frame narrative, Watson steps aside after a brief introduction and allows Holmes to tell the story. Well, the story within the story, if you please. The catalyst that sends Holmes off on his retelling is as refreshing a motivator as it is modern. One roommate, Watson, complaining about the tidiness of another, Holmes, and suggesting that he really ought to clean up the shit of a mess that's threatening to take over the room. How (laughs) How does he expect to get laid with papers and junk lying about? Well, like the odd couple, well, or, big a, bang, or Big Bang Theory, more so. For a moment, Holmes seems contrite, until he finds the perfect excuse to fritter and retrieves from a chest a small wooden box with keepsakes from his first ever case. Well, shit, thinks Watson. I'd better listen to this one. Wait till I get my notebook, Holmes. The trinkets, a crumpled piece of paper, a brass key, a peg of wood, and some rusty metal fragments, are laid carefully out and presented like Michelin star ingredients, each teasing Watson with potential excitement. Holmes assumes a position of storyteller, and Watson forgoes the nagging chores in favor of a fireside yarn. Thus begins the inside story of the Musgrave Ritual. At the beginning of Holmes's career as consulting detective, before moving into his rooms at Baker Street, he lived in Montague Street and cut his teeth by offering distant advice here and there to old fellow students who knew of his talents. People, we presume, not dissimilar to young Trevor. Yes. In a sense, as he explains to Watson, if the glorious Scott was the first serious dalliance he encouraged among his deductive strengths, then this, a case brought before him by Reginald Musgrave, was their coming out party. Described by Doyle as a scion of the very oldest families in the kingdom, Reggie shared lodgings in college with Sherlock and, like others, took and filed mental note of Holmes's reputation. Now he was needing it for a delicate personal matter. You see, his butler and housemaid had disappeared, one less predictably than the other, and despite a thorough search of the property, no sign of either servant was found aside from a vague set of footprints and a bag of dirty metal and glass retrieved from the pond. Since the death of his father, Reggie's been managing the family estates of Hurlstone in Sussex as a bachelor while also playing at local politician. Among the personalities of Hurlstone's considerable staff is Richard Brunton, the butler, who just happens to be the longest-serving member of the household. He's also a man-whore. Yeah, in this regard, the butler really did do it. First, with the fiery Welsh housemaid Rachel on the pool table with the candlestick enough times to propose marriage, then with athletic gameskeeper daughter Janet on the settee in the drawing room with the rope. Kinky. It seems that Rachel didn't much take to having her fiancé up anchor and shoot pigeons with another lady, so much so that she developed, wait for it, brain fever. What are the odds? I wonder, did Sarah Cushing or Alice Rucastle send her a greeting card? Seriously, 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 Conan Doyle, isn't it time you hit your lady victims with something more divergent? I I get that it was your default condition for female stress, but you're a medical doctor, for goodness sake. Anyway... Given the fact that the engagement was invalidated by the butler's infidelity, it was hard to imagine Brunton and Rachel had fled off together. So, Reggie's confused. And, as events would soon reveal, 
The butler's loins had precious little to do with why he and, or, Rachel were on the lam. Musgrave explained to Holmes that, thanks to a black coffee after dinner, he found himself up and restless in the wee hours, and it was while rambling through the dark halls of Hurlstone that he caught Brunton rifling through family documents in the library and studying what looked like a map of the estate. Instead of questioning him, Musgrave immediately dismisses him from his job. Reeling from his boss's impatient explosion of accusation, Brunton accepts the decision but negotiates a week's grace to sort out his situation. Where Musgrave just saw in Brunton a dishonest appetite for nosiness above his station, Holmes quickly understands that it would benefit the butler very little to be up at such hours to snoop when it would be easier done in the daytime with the master of the house away. Though he places no real value on it, Musgrave hands Sherlock the paper that Brunton was actually caught with. It's a family catechism, built of arbitrary, to Reggie at least, questions and answers repeated by each generation of Musgrave in a silly ritual that held no water beyond its tradition of recital. Before long, Holmes is on the first train to Sussex and standing in the ancient nucleus of the Hurlstone estate. Recognizing the ritual as a cipher to be cracked, Sherlock starts measuring trees and strides, shadows and hours, certain that the clues of this family tradition aren't just random words, but instead directions to something important, something that Brunton was close to figuring out. Sherlock leads the hunt like Indiana Jones did in finding the map room, and Reggie follows like an obedient spaniel, until the directions bring them to the stone-flagged entrance of the old door. Helped over the final hurdle by Reggie, in his most, slash only, important moment, Holmes is soon in a wood cellar below the entrance, brushing away timbers to reveal a secret subterranean chamber. As evidenced by his scarf, mm-hmm, as evidenced by his scarf, Brunton had gotten there before him, and uncertain of what he might find, Holmes calls for the county police before moving the slab. All are horrified to discover the butler's body, very much dead and very much hunched rigid, over a chest containing some thirty bits of coin and scraps of metal, but nothing more of substance. Upon examining the remains of the grisly chest, the coins are confirmed to be the vintage of Charles I. Quickly remembering the bag of metal and glass earlier trawled from the mirror during the police's search, Holmes calls for the contents and examines the scraps of metal in Musgrave's study. Matching the evidence in his hand with features of the Musgrave ritual and Reggie's family history of cavaliering, it doesn't take Holmes long to deduce that the contents of the chest, the treasure sought and nearly claimed by Brunton, included the ancient crown of England, forced into hiding after the execution of Charles. The mystery of how they ended up in the pond, and Brunton empty-handed and buried alive next to the chest, is then revealed by Sherlock. Unable to move the flagstone alone, but so close to claiming treasure, Brunton must have delivered an Oscar, Oscar-worthy performance to, by crawling back to the heartbroken, brain-fevered Rachel Howells and promising her the love and marriage earlier discarded for a ride in the gamekeeper's hot jodpers. Her trust restored, Brunton then uses Rachel to help move the stone with, we presume, very little intent of actually sharing the treasure of the Musgrave ritual with her. Like Holmes, we'll never know exactly what took place between the two that saw Rachel flee with the package and Brunton suffocate in the chamber like a bag of freeze-dried peas, but I'd rather like to think that she got her own back in that ambiguous event. While it's possible that the stone, suspended by a timber, fell innocently back into place under its own weight, and sealed, quite literally, the butler's fate after he had handed up the treasure. I'd like to imagine that Rachel twigged in that moment that she was being played again by her ex-lover and opted to get her own by stealing the treasure and spending her cheating man's paycheck on dreams and passions of her own. 
Conan Doyle wisely, and I think appropriately, leaves the nature of that incident equivocal. Quote, mm. Of the woman, nothing was ever heard, and the probability is that she got away out of England and carried herself and the memory of her crime to some land. End quote. Thus ends the frame narrative of the Musgrave ritual, Sherlock Holmes' first noteworthy case from Montague Street. Tale told, Fritter exercised, we can only presume that Watson then held his roomie to account and got down to serious cleaning in the unwritten paragraphs that followed. Hmm. Ta-da. All right. Well, some uh, points raised there that uh, we can definitely discuss. But uh, let's uh, light the pipes on this one and jump into the principles. Okay. You go ahead. You start. I gave principles of four. Uh, Holmes is a bloodhound as ever, and his enthusiasm for the case is infectious. His powers of deduction seem kind of lazy in comparison to other cases, though. Um, by lazy, I mean that deus ex machina, him to figure all that stuff out, right? Uh, the, the narrative kind of just kind of un- unravels it, and then Holmes doesn't really have much agency, to me anyways, in figuring out what, what's going on, except, you know, the whole thing about that the... The, look, the treasure was under the house, right? That's what the end under referred to of the Musgrave ritual. Well, he didn't figure that out. Reggie told him that. Yeah, but he, but Reggie didn't quite understand what it meant, and Holmes just figured because of the shadows of the tree and matching up like the heights and whatnot, he was able to determine, like Brunton was, where the location of the treasure is, that it was actually under the house. Um, moving forward... Uh, I really liked uh, Watson and his audience for this. As of, uh, Watson, even he was the audience for this tale. But, but you know, the little vignettes of their domestic bliss together, you know, coupled with those classical Holmes disorganization, decrepit appearance, and other eccentricities, you know, it gives Watson a dimension in the story where he has really no agency whatsoever. None. None. But I just want to go back just 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 to that whole C situation because it's 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 really really great. An anomaly which often struck me in the character of my friend Sherlock Holmes was that, although in his methods of thought he was the neatest and most methodical of mankind, and although and although he also he affected a certain quiet primness of dress, he was nonetheless in his personal health in his personal habits one of the most untidy men that ever dr- drove a fellow lodger to distraction. Not that I am in the least conventional in that respect myself. The rough-and-tumble work in Afghanistan, coming on the top of natural bohemianism of disposition, has made me rather more lax than befits a medical man. But with me, there is a limit, and when I find a man who keeps his cigars in the coal scuttle, his tobacco in the toe-end of a Persian slipper, and his unanswered correspondence transfixed by a jackknife into the very center of his wooden mantelpiece, then I begin to give myself with virtuous (laughs) airs. I have always held, too, that the pistol practice should be distinctly an open-air pastime, and when Holmes, (laughs) in one of his queer humors... Would sit at a, would sit in an armchair with his hair trigger and a hundred boxer ca- ca- cartridges and pre- and proceed to adorn the opposite wall with a patriotic VR done in bullet bullet pecs bullet pox. I felt strongly that neither the atmosphere nor the appearance of our room was improved by it. You see, I love that opening paragraph, and I love the fact that <laughs> while so he has bitchy. while he has no agency, yeah, he's really bitchy, and I think that's I think that's kind of um, I think that's realistic. I can sympathize with living with someone who's a slob. Not now in my life, 
But, you know, like I, I think we've all had or we all will have, you know, people in our lives that kind of drag us down domestically for different reasons. And I, I like that. Like, I like the fact that that he's voicing that. It, it does give dimension to his character and important dimension in a story where he doesn't do anything else. So yeah. I like that. We get something of, of Watson here, even if it's just um, kind of a, a Moni house or a Moni roommate. It's also a reminder, too, of in many adaptations, I've always saw Sherlock Holmes. You think of the Basil Rathbone earlier ones where you have the, the deerstalker cap Sherlock Holmes, very prim and proper, right? But you don't – and then you watch like Cumberbatch shooting the wall with randomly with his gun and all this kind of stuff. And you think, okay, so this is a different interpretation of Sherlock Holmes. But then you realize is that Yeah, it's actually, here in the source material. It's in the source material. So, I mean, there's many different shades of Sherlock Holmes that are in the this, this source material that really, as a whole, when you put them all together, flesh out a really fascinating – her uh, figure, you know, of, of the of 20th century literature, yeah. early 20th century lit, uh, literature. And uh, to me, uh, I think different interpretations, they pick and choose from these different shades, you know, and what way they're going to portray him. So what what did you think then? What did you give the perpetrators? Or sorry, the principals. The principals? I gave them, I, I, I gave them to, because of this, you know, this uh, odd couple stuff at the beginning and also, and Holmes, you know, very astute regarding finding the... Uh, the treasure and whatnot and putting together about what what happened with uh uh brunton and miss howells there i gave a total of four right okay i gave a 4.5 i i did i i really really liked them here i liked the fact that there is in this early case a certain timidity and an like he's not quite as quick his senses aren't calculating quite as quickly when reggie has to stop in and, and say no under you missed the under part and he's like right okay do you have a seller you know i, I but but then i like the leap that he makes from the coin to the crown and i yes. think i think that all the trigonometry that he brings into this pays really well into his own um, experience as a student at university and his own you know because uh, he, he does say at one point that you know nobody would study math unless they were looking for a practical reason to do something like it's it's a it's not a sensible thing to put in the mind unless you're going to put it to use and I, I like that whole thing I love the um, the little the, it's definitely shades of arrogance here but I like the fact that there's also um, weaknesses in, in Holmes's deductive theories and his abilities. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's purely strength, but the fact is that he's not doing anything really until he finds the butler's body. He doesn't really do anything that the butler didn't do himself. But I find it also interesting on a secondary level that Conan Doyle almost allows for Holmes to be an equal or almost allows for the butler to be an equal here because he tells us that he was quite an educated man. He used to be a school teacher and you get this whole idea that, okay, this isn't just a common butler that we're dealing with a guy that got lucky and put some clues together, but he was able, he was able because he was an intelligent, learned professional. He was able to, to do something that maybe the regular Joe couldn't do. And I think that's an interesting way to give Holmes room to be matched and I, th- I think that all this plays really well for the principal roles. I went 4.5 yes. because ultimately, as you correctly identify, um, Watson doesn't do anything beside, besides nag a little bit and become a sounding board for this story. So we can't give him too much. But uh, I, I only took half point off because this is the kind of Sherlock Holmes story 
that I like when it comes to what I want him doing. I want him telling a story. I want there to be a little rapport between the characters. I want to believe in the inadequacies of the character as much as the strengths. And I feel like I get them all here in this story. So for me, uh, it's an early tale chronologically, but I think it's one of the best that I've seen Sherlock in. So I really like it. Well, you definitely convinced. I was. I gave a conservative four because I was. I was kind of. I wanted to give it four point five, but then I guess him being young and just being not the typical Sherlock Holmes making mistakes, kind of maybe made me be a bit more conservative. But I think now I'm going to switch over to the four point five, just in the sense of how you were, you you expressed. You know uh, how it really fosters uh, interest in Sherlock Holmes' character. In, in, especially in his formative years and the man that he becomes and and you get to see all the all these things that are are corrected later on in life and i like a flawed holmes in, in many ways and and to me this was like the essence of the character portrayed and i think i was a little too conservative so i'm going to stay with uh i'm going to go with now with 4.5 on the uh principles okay that, that's cool if, if you want to do that i'm not i'm not trying to you know, change your mind um but that's that's certainly how i, I read it and and because you know he's not really a perpetrator per se, or is he? That's a debate. If you also compare like Brunton and Sherlock Holmes here, you mentioned how like they have similar origins. They were probably like you know middle class men who were probably smart. He was a teacher. Sherlock Holmes, you know, he became a consulting uh, detective instead. But the difference between Brunton and Sherlock Holmes is that sherlock was able to control his passions and brunton wasn't you wonder you know him becoming a teacher in in school and 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 had no knowledge to his students what got him kicked out of school i guarantee you that there was some backstory written on brunton and somehow in some other form Mm -hmm. (laughs) he was probably fooling around with the with with some of his students most Mm -hmm. likely it's interesting isn't it like there's there's all kinds of stuff here that that makes for an interesting story And and that brings us on to investigation um, I'll, I'll just start, and I'll, I'll be quite quick. I really like the flashback told by Holmes here. Um, I thought that instead of an info drop, this was a nice way to do it because I was getting tired with info drops and letters that tell stories. Like here, we've got him telling a story, which makes for a more interesting narrative, I think. Um, or him, yeah, g- giving the the flashback. It's fun, flashy. Uh, lots of nice gothic elements in this story too. You know, I'm reminded of the Cask of Amontillado, uh, the Edgar Allan Poe story, where you've got the the guy who goes down into the cellar who is recommended a bottle of sherry, and then he he gets trapped to the wall, and they build a wall up over him, and he's basically buried underneath in the cellar. Like you've got stuff going on there. There's definite definite touches of the gothic here in this story, and you've yes. got. I like all that stuff. I thought the pacing of the story was really good. I really found the cipher and the code breaking interesting here. Um, yeah, it wasn't. I understand that you know it 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 wasn't breathtaking and genius, but it was interesting. And the way he did it, the way Hudson, sorry, not Hudson, the way Brunton did it was 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 interesting. And it's kind of like one guy chasing the other, and and you don't often see that, or we haven't often seen a chase in the same way in this series that we you know, we might have expected like Holmes is always a step ahead but here in this early tale he's a couple steps behind until he finds the body and then he you know but he still doesn't find Rachel Howells you know I mean she still no. is out there on the out, out there running around and doing his thing so I thought this was a really good fun story it gave us something new to the formula it to me personally and uh, I, I really really liked it overall there's a number of different sections here that I'm going to um, I'll draw your attention to I'm not I'm not going to read them all out but 
I'm going to talk about them principally when we get to talk about the secondary characters because I think the characterization in the story is great as well. I went uh, I went 4.5 for the investigation because when I finished reading it, mm. when I finished reading it, me personally, um, I, I just had to say this was notably better than anything I'd read from him. And if I'm going to give Gloria Scott a 4, I've got to give this a 4.5 or a 5, but I don't think it's a perfect story, so I went 4.5. Yeah, that's where I went. It was a great story. Uh, Musgrave's tale of Brunton's downfall and his disappearance, uh, which le- after his down his disappearance, you know, it was engrossing to the point where we have sympathy for the character, um, who's referred to in another narrative voice. Um, and everyone loves a treasure hunt, right? I mean, and nothing spices up a treasure hunt like some Agatha Christie style murder. Very ambiguous, right? Um, the ending is rather it's a bit too pat, and I feel a bit unresolved, but. I kind of like that at the same time, and uh, it, it also, you know, this is an earlier case of Sherlock Holmes, so you're bound to have these uh, these strings left dangling, right? And uh, and him just kind of mastering his craft, so to speak. And so, uh, and, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. And also, too, I mean, the fact that they, you know, they found the crown of Charles the First. It seems like it would be a big deal, but. I think I'd weigh a point five for that because I thought maybe there'd be a better, slightly better resolution. I don't mind the fact that Howells got away or or, or escaped, and her if you believe that she's innocent in that way. Um, but uh, I don't know. Like, I think I just think the fact of, of like what the what the ritual was and everything like that and what it revealed. I just thought there might be a, a bit of a bigger uh, response to it. You know, it was kind of like a little bit pat, but I still loved it. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. And I also wonder, like, why the hell would Holmes have been given this? Like, why would he have these keepsakes? I get I get why he would have the peg of wood and why he would have the ball and the string, the measurement utensil or instrument. But why the hell would he have pieces of this crown? And why the hell would he have the actual Musgrave ritual there? Yeah. Like, why, why would he be given that? I, I have no idea. It's a good question. But particularly given, uh, I mean... Already, we know from the barrel coronet, Conan Doyle made a folly with the royal jewels there because they should never have been used as collateral for a personal loan because te- <laughs> yeah. technically they're public, they're public property. So why would this be any different once it was confirmed what it was? And remember, Holmes and uh, Musgrave, you know, they did this work in the study with the police around, right? Like it wasn't as though this was totally in isolation. Did they examine these things? So. I just don't understand why he would have any of it. But is that a political statement on Arthur Conan Doyle, perhaps? You know, being very pro-American and and even Sherlock Holmes to the point in one story where he said he imagined a world of this of the Union Jack and the Star Spangled Banner, you know, <laughs> yeah. all all together. Is this the just him like going, eh? It's the English Crown, whatever, <laughs> you know? Maybe, maybe you're and right. And as a Scotsman, that's kind of that's, that's kind of even more weird because you think there'd be some patriotism towards the Stuart line, right? Which was Charles the First. That's right. Represented, so the Stuart Crown. I mean, that—that's something. You know what I mean? Well, maybe, maybe safeguarding the Stuart Crown in his own character, in the possession yeah. of his own character, is—is is, you know the way he wants it to be done. Oh, true. Yeah, that's almost a symbol of his nationalism, right? That there is having his famed character being yeah, the custodian of the uh, of the uh, royal, I guess, uh, attire. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the perpetrators of this story then um, 
Okay, well, basically, just to summarize what I said, and certainly what I think you are saying um, about this investigation, um, for me personally, no, so sorry, let me try that again, that was a garbled mess of shite. Um, what I'm saying is that this is probably my favorite investigation of the memoirs of the memoirs so far, whereas you just saw it as a really good one. Maybe your favorite, maybe you're not. Anyway, we don't have to say favorites, but I, I'm telling you that it was my favorite investigation. Whether it's my favorite story so far, we'll see. But um, I think I think it was the most entertaining investigation so far. I really, really liked uh, the uh, Silver Blaze uh, investigation. It was good. Yeah, it was good. What did I give that one? You made me wonder now. I have a doubt of myself. <laughs> uh, Silver Blaze. Yeah, it was 4.5 of that one as well. Yeah. Those fives are, are hard to come by. Yeah. Those they are for, for the five to come by because there's just something there that just doesn't deserve it, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. The so nine little detail. L- l- let's wrap up then our, uh, our our final pipes here and move on by talking about the perpetrators. I would think that realistically, the perpetrator we have here is Brunton. I mean, he he's the one who's framed mm-hmm. as a perpetrator, um, because he ultimately steals something that doesn't belong to him but musgrave doesn't know it's there either so is it you know yeah and in a sense in a sense brunton's behavior enables the musgrave ritual to be realized that is definitely true so in a way he could be viewed as a perpetrator i kind of had rachel howells as a perpetrator here and i guess in in definition of what we consider a perpetrator ah you go outside the you go outside the box there I kind of see now that uh, Brunton could be seen that way too. Well, I, that's really interesting. I didn't read Rachel Howells as a perpetrator. I read her as a victim. And that's why I love the ambiguous ending that Doyle gives us because I think she just gets her own back. I understand that she... The fact that she threw away the bag into the lake and then just ran away for good says something. Maybe she still got the brain fever and doesn't know what's going on. But I'd like to think that she is getting one over on Brunton, who, you know, screwed her over pretty heavily by boning the gameskeeper's daughter and is is now just taking his precious thing once she realizes she's being used as a as a tool and uh, and just runs away. Like and I love what he makes sorry. Well, no, I'll, I'll just finish up. I, I love the thought that maybe there was actual gold in that bag, and she took everything that looked valuable before she threw the bag in the in the in the drink, and then she runs away and starts a new life for herself, getting over on the guy who who fucked her over and around. I, I love that idea. I think it's yeah. great. I think it's great yeah. given given what we've got. So, but that's how I like to interpret the story. I, I may be projecting here, Josh. Like I might be projecting yes. what I want to see. And certainly, my choice of musical selection <laughs> would su- would would uh, suggest a certain projection on my part, as it will come soon. But yeah. I like Rachel he, Howells. Um, he definitely he definitely wasn't Rachel, he definitely wasn't Jeffrey the Butler, eh? No, but there is a clue. There is a clue in the story that Conan Doyle did intend maybe for her, and she, he does say in that last quote of the story that I read out. Um, does say her crime and so he you know he reads what she did as as criminal behavior by stealing the bag and leaving the guy to die but i don't think it's really like that that's what that's what uh holmes says but i don't know that she does necessarily leave him like it's ambiguous maybe it is it's it's so ambiguous and i think that what makes the perpetrator kind of very 
blurred blurred lines here, you know, in, in terms of who the per yeah. per perpetrator is. The probability is that she got away out of England and carried herself. Now, how would she have been able to carry herself, metaphorically or physically, off of England soil or English soil if she didn't have money? And where was she going to get that money as a housemaid if she didn't take some treasure with her? Like this is yes. why I, this is why I like this idea because carried herself tells a lot uh, in terms of connotation. It gives us a lot to play with. And I think it's really cool to imagine her sitting on or standing on the deck of a ship bound for America, um, just laughing about it all, like brain fevered or not. Like, I, th I think that's really cool. But anyway, and if you think about it, too, politically, if Conan Doyle is pro-American, then he's also not really he might not even be pro-Scotland as it was part of the of the uh, of the of the United Kingdom. And also the Stuart Crown really probably also could not have meant something to him either. You have Sherlock Holmes being his, his his figure, Sherlock Holmes being like the caretaker of the Stuart Crown, mm -hmm. and then you have the ultimate revenge. Before you had the Stuarts, before you had uh, the English, even you had the Celts of Wales, right? Mm -hmm. And they were subjugated by the English just as bad as the Irish was. I'm and glad, now you have this ultimate kind of symbolic revenge, yeah. you know, of her getting away with the uh, the Stuart the Stuart gold. Exactly. And I'm so happy that you brought that up because that's exactly what I'm going to talk about here. You're, you're spot on talking about that Welsh, the fiery Welsh temper that Holmes um, cites in her. I'm going to read you a note, uh, one of Klinger's annotations here about that. Holmes's perception of the Welsh temperament may have arisen from the somewhat embattled history of Wales, a rugged individualist land seemingly constantly under siege by the Romans, by the English, Wales mm -hmm. became a part of England in 1536, and by cultural British imposition such as language, law, puritanism, and industrialization. The sheep farming nation didn't take well to the Industrial Revolution and its push towards coal mining. The Rebecca riots of 1843, in which poor farmers dressed in women's clothing destroyed toll booths to protest roll toads, road tolls, were but one manifestation of the conflict. Religious tension was another constant, since many Welsh resented having to tithe one-tenth of their incomes to the Church of England when they had established their own denomination, the Calvinist Methodist Church. British displeasure with the obstinacy of Welsh nonconformity was responsible in part for the scathing indictments of the 1847 Report of the Commissioners for Education, which not only lambasted the Welsh educational system, but also depicted the Welsh, particularly its women, as slovenly, morally corrupt, ignorant, and promiscuous. Given all that, it seems likely that Holmes's description of Rachel Howells as fiery and passionate was not meant as much of a compliment. Hmm. But that gives her motive culturally for wanting to take a bit of revenge exacting a bit of revenge on her ex-lover yeah against the uh against the uh the uh the uh i guess the whorish uh symbol of the british empire right mm -hmm. and interesting side note howells by the way uh gave way and gives way i should say because it's still a surname to powell that's where the word that's where the, the surname Powell comes from, which is, of course, a Welsh name. And now you know something else. So basically, Fiery Temper, Howell, Powell, Fiery Redhead. I'm, I'm just putting it out there for you. I'm just saying, maybe I feel a bit of kindredness with this girl and I want to see her get away. <laughs> I want to see her get away. <laughs> well done. Well done. Mm -hmm. uh, as a whole, I gave uh, the perpetrators 3.5 uh, because of the yep. blurred lines, but you brought up some great points. It doesn't make me raise my, my score or anything, but you did bring some really great nuances here, and I think we kind of dove, we kind of dove into them ourselves, actually. We kind of like the traps were laid for us, and 
boy, did we fall in. But uh, we don't regret falling in either. Right. You went 3.5. I, I went 3.5. Um, I feel a little bit bad for Brunton. Um, yeah, I, I did too. Even though he was a bit of an ass, like yeah, yeah, uh, he's more of a perp in the in the story uh, than Howells is. And but his fall from grace, uh, the womanizing, the rakish butler, fortune hunter turned corpse, you know, he stands out despite his fate as a quote unquote victim. Like we don't know. Did Rachel drop the stone on his head? Did she just see him fall? Did did did, did she just like just leave him down there and just say whatever and just walked away and then the the stone fell and locked into place and then he screwed himself over? Exactly, we don't know. Yeah. And right? that's why that's why BFG. That's why I think this is such brilliant writing and why the investigation deserves such a high mark because this has been well thought out by Conan Doyle. It needed two people to move the stone. Needed two people to move it. Right. We understand yes. that. That presumably is why. Um, Brunton goes back to her in the first place because she'd be the easiest to manipulate emotionally, particularly if she's got the brain fever, to <laughs> to help him out, believing yes. all kinds of you know lies about how he feels for her. Yet she wouldn't likely have been able to move the stone on her own so that it would fall over to place. So was it kind of like fate or destiny that the wood that was used as you know a, a, a kind of a, a a bridge there to open the gap or to keep it to keep it from suffocating him is it fate that that happened like there's a lot of unknowns in this ambiguous episode that closes the story and i love that i think it makes it interesting and it's not a tight bow wrapped on top of it <laughs> no it's not it's not and that's what i that's that's a good point and i think what you really mean by you like the investigation in this story the most is it's not the quote-unquote investigation, the clues and all that that you like about this story that you're referring to, giving it a high score. It's the just it's if you take away, if you if you if you consider the writing of in, of itself, yeah, and yeah. the structure of the narrative, not yeah. of like the, uh, the the typical Sherlock Holmes investigation part of that, That's but right. just as, as a narrative whole, the plot structure. That is what is so uh, commendable about this story. For me, yeah, and as as we said, I mean that's that's where the eye gets its points too. It's not just you know the dots and the the plot incidents. It's yes. how everything works and how the writing works around it. That's that's where we give our style and our narrative mark, and that's why I've given it so highly there because I do like it. But having said that, I still find that I still find that the investigation is fun. I like watching Holmes do an Indiana Jones type trick because that's my mm -hmm. cultural reference, right? To seeing him yeah. with the staff in the map room and thinking about all of that stuff. And I think yes. it's cool that this is a treasure hunt. And I love the the little touches of Stuart history. I, I think this is a great story, man. Like, I, yeah. I really do. I think there's a lot in here to sink on. So for perpetrators, we both went 3.5. I, I would like to go higher, but I think in fairness to the story those necessarily aren't the best things about it. So 3.5 is still a good mark. What did you think about the environment? I gave environments a four. Mm -hmm. Purple is a smorgasbord of atmosphere and emotion. The treasure beneath its grounds, the passion of Brunton and Howells, the passion of Howells. Uh, it's just a very tense ambiance. It just sets the story beautifully and it all works together. Yeah, and, and the description particularly of, like, the, the, um... of Hurlstone was, was, was good in itself too. Yeah, and it's interesting you mention that because there's there's a whole appendix in my copy of or in my uh, annotated copy of the story about the shape uh, of Hurlstone and how part of the wing was deserted, and they gave different drawings. There's actually schematics there that scholars have looked at for where exactly on the estate in this L-shaped estate the um, 
you know, the, the treasure was located. It's it's quite crazy. And I, I caught the Jeremy Brett episode um, of the Musgrave Ritual, which is, which is definitely worth a look. And it's dramatized. I haven't seen that one yet, so it's good, eh? It's Yeah, but it's dramatized in all kinds of different ways. And the, yeah. um, um, the what do you call it? Um, yeah, the actual treasure is, like, they have to go over like a little moat on the estate and get into this, this weird sort of towery place. It's, I don't know. It's, it's stranger, but mm. it, it's just another Gothic element that's brought into it. But I like the environment as well. I thought it was fun. Got a good description of the trees, good description of the, mm. the estate itself. And yeah, I like I like where it starts. I like where the story ends. Um, it's very picturesque and the Gothic elements help to sustain it. Uh, and I went for a four as well. Good, good. And then moving on then to the uh, supporting cast. Uh, to me, like, it was, again, I, I think with the perpetrators, I'm at 3.5 again. The, the Musgraves are interesting, you know, Reginald in his own way. I think he was a bit too harsh on Brunton with the trespassing into family paraphernalia that he yeah. obviously didn't really care about. And But that just shows we live in a different age, right? Um, yeah, totally. Uh, but, he, and, but Reginald was your typical Holmesian client in the end. Uh, I found that Rachel Tregellis was merely a footnote. Uh, Howells was shown briefly, but there's nuance to her character that that's that that's written in there, even though she doesn't really take a pay a, a big part in the narrative as a whole. You know, yeah. like like she's not present in there. She's present in terms of of the events that occurred, and and she's definitely a device of revenge and justice in its own kind of way, and that she works well in that capacity. But to me, that their their characters being used as what's the word uh, ciphers in, in in a way to tell a story and promote a message or an idea, right? And there's just there were there was something just kind of not uh, fleshed out that I would have liked, I suppose, except for Brunton. Uh, I was really fascinated by 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 Brunton, and I think uh, he could have been a whole he could have been a story for a whole book, you know, in my opinion. Okay, cool. So what did you give them? I gave 3.5. Okay, 3.5 for you. Um, I went for a 4 here with these guys. And okay. I, I saw them paying into and contributing more to the environment a little bit more than you did. Like, I, I, I like, yeah, okay, fine. Janet Tregellis isn't really in the story, but she's the motive that Howell would have for revenge. The oh, fact Janet Tregellis, yeah, sorry, not the, Rachel. Janet, yeah, sorry. The, <laughs> fa the fact that Rachel... Um, and Brunton were engaged and then the engagement was called off because he was boning this other woman. I, I like that. I like the fact that that would contribute to attention that could motivate Musker, sorry, that could motivate Brunton to get the hell out of there, but find some, find some of this long rumored treasure first. Like he, I like the fact that there's a lot of tension and who knows who else he slept with. He's described as a bit of a Lothario. Um, I don't exactly remember the expression that is used, uh, Casanova or something like that. What is it he calls him? Don Juan. A Don Juan, thank you very much. Yeah, he's described as that. And so he's probably slept with, there's probably all kinds of tension in that household that, you know, is caused by his magic Byron is a butler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, if, if that were the case, then there's lots of guys running around as well who are lovestruck. But they're, they're, and their names are kind of similar too, Brunton, Byron, you know, like, Maybe Arthur Conan Doyle was making a, a slight joke here. <laughs> yeah, and I love the name too of Hurlstone. I, I know we're getting back to environs, but it's such a great name, given that that's actually what has to happen, right? It's like they're moving the stone away. Yeah, to get a treasure. the stone. Yeah, uh -huh. 
and you've got such puritanical i mean there's there's a lot of uh, like i don't know if you want to read this into it if you want to read this far into it but you've got the idea of rolling the stone right and you think about christ and rising lazarus yeah and lazarus and all that shit but then you've also got the link to um to christianity and the religious war not just not just the the kind of Welsh English thing, but you've got the Stuart line as well in the execution. Yes, Catholic and all versus, and, yeah. and the idea of hurling a stone aside, like and how the stone is implicit in what 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 affects uh, and what ultimately brings um, Brunton to his death. Like I think it's all kinds of interesting stuff here in this story, and it's subtle, but again, that's investigation. It's a deep text. It's a deep yeah, text. It is a deep text, and it, it, it's cool. So I, I went for a four with the secondary characters because I think they do have some good dividends to pay. Um, I feel like I want to go higher, but I think that's just my enthusiasm for the moment, and I'm going to stick with my four. So that okay. brings that brings me to, uh, what have I got? A 20. I got 20.5 for that story. Wow. Um, yeah, I got 20.5 for that story, which is the same score I gave Silver Blaze. Uh, but I enjoyed reading this one more, for what it's worth. Uh, and you gave this, my friend, a seven and nine. You gave it a twenty. So for you, it's uh, a half point behind Silver Blaze. So systematically, we both enjoyed this a lot, and you seem to enjoy it uh, almost equal to me. Yeah, I think I just wanted a little bit more. I think I think I was greedy. Then uh-huh. and now I'm re- realizing, you know, that there there is depths that I just didn't consider uh, the first time reading it and whatnot. Uh, that maybe I'll uh, drink deeper next time when I read it. Drink deeper. Well, look, um, I've got two musical selections for this, and I don't feel we have to choose. I, I feel I want to play two of them. One of them I'll play, and then we'll talk about in a summary and our goodbye. And then the other one I think I'll I'll put in at the end. So, um, would you like? What's behind door number one or door number two for us to play and discuss? Door number two. Door number two. Okay, buddy. You have selected um, the song, you ready for it? Hit em Up Style by Blue Cantrell, which is a song all about how ladies can get revenge on their men by hitting them where it hurts in their bank account. And if you think about the <laughs> possibility of Rachel Howells having taken the treasure and disappeared or lifted herself from English soil, I think this works quite well. Um, I think you'll have heard it before as well. Enjoy. Get your hands on his cash While he was scheming, I was dreaming in the beamer, just steaming. Can't believe that I called my men cheating. So I found another way to make him pay for it all. So I went. To Neiman Marcus on a shopping spree uh, And on the way I grabbed Soli and Mia And as the cash box rang I thought everything away Oops, there goes the dream we used to say There goes the times we spent away There goes the love I had but you cheated on me And that's for that now There goes the house we made a home There goes you'll never leave me alone For all the lies you told This is what you're all Get fucked wild Just go back and hit him up 
All right, so guilty pleasure, you know, I like the tune, but I think it's it fits. Good. I think it fits really, really well with how I want to read the story, which is a story of, you know, a guy trying to take advantage of his master, and the girl that he screwed over in his way taking advantage of him and running away with the cash. Like I, I love, I love that idea, even if it isn't really what we're meant to believe. But uh, she's a victim, you know, she's a victim, and she she does she does what she does. Sounds good. Anyway, that's, your, uh, your that's chair farting there, is it? My yeah, I got one of those leather chairs actually. Mm, it farts. It farts every episode, but uh, always uh, welcome addition to the broadcast. It's just the quality of the uh, of the uh, pickup there. <laughs> yeah, that'll be it. Uh, right, pal. So that's us. Uh, let's just do a little. Um, what's the word? A little uh, recap on what we what we did today. We started with the adventure of the stock broker's clerk, which. We liked uh, you two points more than me. You went 17.5. I went 15.5. Then we got to the adventure of the Glorious Scott, which you liked a point more than I did. And then we, uh, you were at 19.5. And then we just came on to the uh, Musgrave Ritual, which we both really liked. I liked it at 20.5, half point ahead of you. So <laughs> interestingly, our conversation here started with the story we liked and we got better and better. Um, which was opposite to the first three stories where we started with the Silver Blaze at the best and then we went down and down progressively. <laughs> so <laughs> we're just coming back up. It's it's a bit of a, what a parabola or what do you call them? An oscillating, uh, an oscillating waveform. You know, it, it starts with its peaks and troughs and it's going back up. So follow, <laughs> following this, Roller our, coaster. Next, our next story should start high and drop low. Who knows? Yeah, I'd be curious to see on how that turns out. Um, I also, I think the the overall connectedness of uh, telling a tale within a tale, and then also just the pursuit of wealth in all these stories and mm-hmm. what it leads to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's wealth in all these stories, and that that that's fitting because it makes the stories modern. It makes the stories uh, human, and there are believable characters in here. You know, Sherlock and Watson. I'm coming to learn are really not necessarily or all the time, the only things that Conan Doyle wants you paying attention to. Like, if you read the stories and only think about the actions of those characters, then you're going to be disappointed. But if you can find the human touches in the supporting cast and in the places that they travel, then there's so much to enjoy from these. And, you know, now that... I mean, we're about a third of the way through now, perhaps a little bit more, this adventure of ours. And we started... When we started, I hadn't read a single home story. Um, which is a little bit embarrassing given that I'm an English teacher and have been for 13 or 14 years. And um, I, I feel as though I'm, I'm doing what I was hoping to do, which is get a real good feeling for Conan Doyle as a writer and why these stories deserve so much attention. And yeah, I love Holmes and Watson, and they are the things that I'm looking forward to, that partnership. But I'm getting so much richness out of the, the wallpaper and the other things that are going on yes. here that, that, that support the main players. And I'm really enjoying this little, uh, this little project. It's, it's, it's the portrait it's of late Victorian England and the world around it. That's mm. you get, that is captured in, in these tales that stands out, you know, and Holmes and Watson are the Titans that navigate these labyrinths, so to speak of, of uh, greed and lust and, and uh, other perfidities. But at the same time, 
it's the world that, that they all compose, uh, the compose, compose together, you know, that makes it uh, great reading. Yeah, yeah. So that's us uh, halfway through the memoirs, 18 stories out of 56 in total, and still two novels left to come. Um, yeah, any... after the memoirs, we got uh, the big one, The Hound of the Baskerville, that's, the most famous uh, yeah. story. I'm I'm familiar with the story just through uh, you know versions I've seen of the, the the narrative, but I'm I'm really looking forward to the source material because I'd be one of the few humans I guess who considers himself well read that hasn't read that. Um, <laughs> it, it'll be good. It'll be fun. And I I work with a girl who a lady who's a big Holmes nut. I only discovered this actually in the last day of term, but she says that. Um, it's funny, there was a talent show going on. At the end of term, there's often a talent show, you know, this thrown in the main hall. All the school gets together and watches people embarrass themselves trying to sing and stuff like that, right? Anyway, um, or I mean, sorry, kids doing great things. That's what I should have said. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm sitting up at the balcony with the class that I've taken there um, and just watching these kids, you know, perform. Some of them doing a really good job, you know, but some of them just being assholes looking for attention. And... Um, I'm talking to this other teacher, you know, and she's like, oh, you're because I was explaining what we're doing, this project that we're doing and how I'm linking it to, you know, my school objectives as well. Like I'm going to try to get well, I am getting a lot of teaching resources for, you know, through all this and posterity in my career and whatnot. So I'm, I'm putting it to good use, this fun we're having, um, though the podcasts themselves will never see the light of day in a classroom, uh, at least not under my auspices. Someone else's perhaps. <laughs> Uh, but I was talking to her about this stuff, and she was telling me about how you know she's a, you know she does like cosplay and everything. It's quite funny. But she said that the Baskervilles is a story she reads it every year, like it kind of like I do with the Old Man and the Sea or a Christmas Carol, hmm. which are two annual reads for me. Uh, she says Baskerville is a story she just reads every year. She loves it. Always find something new in it. I, I read the story myself, and it, it it is a great story. And I don't want, I don't want to hype it up for you. You know, I want to make you make your own judgments and opinions. Of course, on it, yeah, but, and I will, I will. But it's just it's, neat that what we're doing, which which seems very concentrated and very intense, sometimes, is still part of a world that so many other people enjoy. And that's why I think the service that we're providing here, for now, to ourselves and posterity and our small audience, is is still a really good one because we're finding a nice middle scholarship through these uh, you know a mid-level scholarship through through these stories which isn't isn't too up its own puff but at the same time is offering more than just the goodreads and I, I'm, I'm really proud of what we're doing so far i'm enjoying it well on behalf of all the sherlock f- fandom uh welcome to the club <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe this is me maybe this is me coming out now and saying i'm i've arrived you're you're a holmesian <laughs> maybe yeah maybe so well, anyway, look, pal, it's it's been great fun. Um, I think we're going to have a short conversation once we stop the recording and bring the episode to a close. But unless there's anything else you want to add about the memoirs or what we're doing or, or how today's been, I'm just going to introduce our, our final musical selection. Yeah, carry on. Uh, what's, said be, what's said to be said needs to be needed to be said, and uh, the words have their impact, And I hope. <laughs> and yeah. uh, let's continue forward with the... Uh, getting ready for the next show all right well here's a song from uh, a good canadian guitar player named david wilcox and uh, not the folk <laughs> singer the the rock singer or the rock guitar player who's uh, well he must be close to 70 now but um i found this song i just had to play it not not just for rachel howells but for all of the the women um we've got sarah cushing or is it mary no sarah cushing mary died mary and died. we've got we've got sarah cushing 
from the uh, Adventure of the Cardboard box, we've got here, of course, Rachel Howells, and we had Alice Rucastle in the Copper Beaches, all poor, or in some way, victims of brain fever. And so here we go with David Wilcox, going to end our episode today, dedicated to those three ladies and any who are yet to be discovered in the annals of Sherlock Holmes who are stricken with brain fever. So it's good night from me over here in Dumfries, Scotland, and good night from Josh in Canada, Ontario. Go! Ladies, this one's for you. <laughs> <laughs>